Hello, 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 and welcome to Take 15 of the Film Fives podcast with me, Russell Guyver, and him, Phil Newman. Good evening. We're up to 15 already. That's 15, pretty good yeah. going, isn't it? It's taken a year and a half or whatever, but yeah, yeah. I'm, quite, I'm quite happy with that. We're sidling along, aren't we? Like a yeah. really just a franchise series of films or something. Um, exactly. It's, it's been good fun so far, and um, we're turning our attention this week. Another to, sub-genre um, film, isn't sub-genre. it? Yeah, we'll come on to details in a minute. But first of all, um, thank you for listening to any of the past episodes. Hope you've enjoyed them. I wonder what you thought of our Billy Wilder. If you've got any further thoughts on that. Yeah, that was great. Um, Enjoyed that one. Um, One of our listeners, a friend of mine, Andy Bass, is uh, shocked at uh, someone having the apartment at number four. He's saying that's one of his top five films of all time. Uh, Somebody had it. No spoilers. Somebody had it at number one. (laughs) (laughs) exactly yes yeah um uh, he was he was happy enough with my number one of um some like it hostily so uh uh, saving grace there sorry andy (laughs) (laughs) anyway yes it is on to a subgenre again this week and we have chosen to go with heist movies and phil we've we've been having a little bit of debate setting a criteria for this one there there is yeah because there's so many different variants so in the end i went with a criteria that i sort of told you so there's been quite a lot of confusion the criteria i've used are that one we generally see the planning of the heist if there is any planning mm-hmm. two um the the major crime is the film's centerpiece mm-hmm. and number three the film focuses on the criminals rather than those trying to stop them that's what i've gone by so that discounts a lot of heist films so there's no reservoir dogs there's no snatched there's no lock stock and two smoking barrels there's no fish called wanda and no mission impossible films even though they obviously have heist elements yeah and usual suspects i think is another one we've usual suspect yeah yeah brilliant film and we'll probably get onto it in some other way but yeah yeah i think on you don't see the planning and the carrying it out you know what happens afterwards yeah, exactly. And it's on that basis that there will be a little bit of a difference to what I might have picked, depending on the criteria. Obviously. One or two of mine are a little bit woolly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's understandable. It, it, it's it's the kind of weighing up about how much do I want to talk about it? How much does yeah. it fit the criteria? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's understandable like that. It's fair enough, isn't it? Okay, great. Um, And I think I've struck a balance of mine of a, a little bit of cleverness a little bit of classic yeah in watching them i realized there are basically two types of heist film you've got your caper type flick where they're all lots of like you know really good dialogue and really chatty and you friendly and it's a fun it's amusing and then you've got your kind of really grim look at the criminal underworld what sort of thing i've as you probably would would get would would, would <laughs> I mean, you're, my first you're bit. drinking it, ladies. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> I've gone. I much prefer the kind of caper type flick. So mine is a bit more biased in that. In that now, kind of why does that not surprise me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what. That's what I was meaning to say. Phil's a fun-loving film fan, aren't you, Phil? Exactly. It just fits the bill for you. Yeah. And I've got a possible inclusion of the same in mind as well. Actually. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, I mean, the very, very brief potted history. Um, so the heist is a kind of, it's a crime film subgenre focused on the planning, execution and aftermath of a significant robbery. 
Uh, one of the kind of early defining heist films was the Asphalt Jungle back in 1950, which almost single-handedly popularised the genre for mainstream cinema. And then uh, kind of almost immediately afterwards, it, it expanded and people added like new elements, whether it would be comedy or action or everything else to it. Um, and sort of by the 90s, it was pretty ubiquitous. You could you would definitely get a couple every year, you know, coming along. Generally speaking, they're, they're normally quite good fun. Hmm. Yep, that's good. And um, yeah, so the genre is you know it goes back a fair way. Um, it's changed, evolved, adapt, adapted, been tweaked with, and almost like sub sub genreized as well, wasn't it? Along yeah. the way, in certain elements, and you mentioned Reservoir Dogs and things like that. I mean, that's not as we've said under our criteria a heist film. I still watched it. Yes. I, I haven't watched it. I don't think I've watched it in about 20 years. I've got to be yeah. perfectly honest. Same here. Yeah. And you realise watching it how influential it is because you're thinking, I remember being blown away by it, this when mm. it came out. And now I'm watching it. It seems like every other film that's come out over the last 20 years because they've all just borrowed from it, you know. Yeah. Still loved it. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. Totally were influenced by unusual suspects later as well, actually. But what yeah. they did, especially with the artwork and the imagery and the sort of almost like the branding of the film. But with Reservoir Dogs, and this is going to age me, I did see it on first run in the cinema uh, and it did but blow me away. Yeah. Film, to say. yeah. But um, we'll talk about that one, I'm sure, on another occasion when it's yeah. of what we've we've set out for this one. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of sets the, sets the standard, the whole notion around the job being done and there's a concept of the setup the execution the snag the the typical yeah, motif, isn't it? something More, always goes wrong yeah yeah because obviously that's how they put they they play the uh the story out isn't it yeah it's not going to be entertaining enough if you just have them execute the job really well and walk off into the sunset no, there's exactly. going to be at least some kind of twist either they get away with it after some jeopardy or they don't get away with it at all or they sort of half get away with it there's something like the italian job which obviously has that famous closing scene which we might talk about later on i'm sure um so uh, did they get away with it or not they were going to do a sequel they never did in the end did they for that hang on lads i've got a brilliant idea i watched that again last week <laughs> yeah, i remember I'm... watching the italian job as a kid and thinking it went on for hours and hours and hours. And I haven't watched that in years either. Mm. And then you watch it now and it just flashes past. It's only about an hour and a half long. Yeah. And it, it's basically pretty much the whole film is the job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah when, that's right. When, yeah. I, when I was seven or eight, I was just wanting to see the bits with the minis at the end, I think. Hmm. May or may not be making an appearance. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And I mean, the, 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 jo- the job, the big job, if there is a singular job in the story is usually a good half an hour in, maybe longer. Um, and you either have it early and there's a lot of aftermath for whatever reason, or it's, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's the major domineering element of the, of the stuff, the runtime, or you get it um, towards the end. Or um, in some cases, it doesn't happen, uh, which I'm, I'm going to get on mm. to talk about in a minute. Not necessarily in my top five, but I'll, um, I'll, I'll tell people. But it used to be, obviously, we've spoken about this quite a lot in previous episodes and all the different code, haze codes, and you couldn't show the criminals getting away with it. At some point, I don't know, in sort of late 70s, early 80s, you were then allowed to. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it a bit more interesting. You never exactly. quite know where it's going to go. 
that plays into all sorts of elements as well, indeed. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, there's there's a very rich list to pick from, even within the criteria that we've gone yeah. through. Um, we, are, of course, traditionally just do it our top fives. We'll probably mention some near misses along the way as well. And we think with this 15th episode, it is your turn to go first, isn't it, Phil? Just so, starting off, so I thought I'd start you off with what beer I'm on. Oh, yes, we better get into the important stuff first. That's true. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I, I don't know really much about this one. It's a jungle trip. New England Pale Ale. Oh, branching out today. Hazy Tropical Citrus. It's all right. Not too I'm, bad I'm, at all. I'm sl- sort of slow sipping my way through tonight, trying to take a little easy. So I've gone for things that take a little bit longer. Now, one of our, my mates, Nick, listens to this podcast. And in fact, he submitted his top five, which we'll read out oh, later brilliant. on. Nick in Manchester. Hello, Nick. And Nick loves a sour. Um, he'll be oh, smiling now. He doesn't. He hates a sour. But I, do like I, a sour. I love one. I, I, like, I like about half a pint of a sour and then I'm done. Yeah, After that's exactly the, yeah. where I'm going with, with this one, which is called um, Polyamori, which is a mango sour. So Nick... Who's a sour hater? This one's for you, mate. I'm really enjoying this one. Um, I would recommend pausing the podcast if you're listening, Nick. Go out to the local off-license, see if you can find this or something similar. Come back, open that, and then carry on with the pod. Or, or carry on with it in, in the office. <laughs> right. right, let's do that's, this. That's the formalities out of the way. <laughs> now on to the fun stuff. Phil, over to you for your number So, five. me, my number five, and you are going to hate this. <laughs> you, I, don't, I doubt you've even seen this film File Under Guilty Pressure this is a film that I absolutely love and I've probably watched almost as many times since it came out as almost any other film I am of course talking about the ludicrous, the ridiculous the truly, truly wonderful Fast and Furious 5 <laughs> oh it's so good right. the rest oh. of them are pretty terrible <laughs> This one is the absolute business. This is right. you know, it's just so good. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. And I've, I, I think I saw the first one and I haven't seen any of the others since. Not first that, one, all right. Second yeah. one, terrible. Third one, dreadful. Fourth yeah. one, all right. Well, Fifth one, fantastic. <laughs> Sixth one onwards pretty much diminishing returns and getting sillier and sillier yeah. but the fifth one that's where it's at if you're going to watch one you watch the fifth one which okay. i will be talking about now all right well maybe i'll check this out then based on what you're about to say yeah okay so dominic toretto uh for those in the know that's vin diesel and his crew of street racers plan a massive heist in brazil to buy their freedom while in the sights of a powerful brazilian drug lord and a dangerous federal agent, the federal agent I'm sure most people know being Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, also stars Paul Walker, Jadana Brewster, Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, Matt Schultz, Song Kang and Gal Gadot, the same people that have turned up in all of them. So this is the kind of, this is the film where they decided they were going to depart from the, the tried and tested formula that they'd had before. They, they, the films are sort of done reasonably and respectably well, but when you've got a load of films about street racers, there's only so many people that are going to be interested and they're all going to be men. So <laughs> for the most part. So um, they thought we want to branch out a bit. Let's do a heist film. Let's set it in Brazil when no one ever does action films ever. And we'll try and attract a more much wider audience. And it definitely did. I mean, this is the one that kind of launched the franchise again, really. I mean, this was originally going to be 
the last one, which is why they brought back a lot of the, the characters from previous films. And it was going so well that during it, they greenlit the sixth one, which is all right. But from then onwards, it's not, not really that good. This, this is just in terms of action films of the last 10, 11 years, this is just up there with anything. There's some of the set pieces in it. Fantastic. Robbing cars from a train, <laughs> a, a foot battle through uh, the favelas of brazil being chased all the way through and then at the end you have the the magnificent heist which ends with two dodge chargers pulling a massive safe about the size of a bedroom along behind them (laughs) smashing into everything as they're being chased all over the place it's truly absolutely wonderful and i i i I can't i can't recommend it enough yes the dialogue's ridiculous the performances are hammy, but if you kind of just have a beer and go with it, you're in for a great time. Um, directed by Justin Lin, Taiwanese director who did Star Trek Beyond, True Detective and a load of other Fast and Furious films of mixed uh, results. Um, yeah, he, he got sort of said, right, I want to do a heist film. I want to do something like The Italian Job. I want to do something like The French Connection. Um, he went to Brazil, he studied the culture, there's a lot of it in there that it seeps in, you get to find out a lot more about kind of Brazil um, although the rooftop chase I alluded to earlier, that was actually filmed in Puerto Rico but the set pieces in this are up there with anything um, it's mad, I mean as I said the, the, the actual heist at the end with the car chase they trashed 200 cars pulling a bankroll along behind them, just filming it. It's it's just so much fun. Um, and it's not just um, people with limited intelligence like myself that think this is a lot of fun. Roger Ebert himself, um, when he was still around, he gave the film three out of four stars, praising it as a skillfully assembled 130 minutes at the movies with actors capable of doing absurd things with straight faces and action sequences that toy idly with the laws of physics. And there are a lot of similar reviews. I mean, this was also the last one of these films where they did most of the work properly. It It was actual genuine stunt work rather than the CGI nonsense that they kind of do in those sort of films now. All right. The Rock is he he comes in as the guy that's going to kind of track them down. Never been better. Ludicrously over the top, testosterone fueled idiocy. So much fun. You just you just want to watch more of it. I mean, he got his spin off film from this with Jason Statham, that Hobson Shaw film, which also was a bit meh, not particularly brilliant, but it was it, it was always good fun to see the two characters on stage. But in terms of action heist films, this is the best one. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe I will check that out because I said I, I I was underwhelmed with the first one. If I did see it at all, I think I did, and um, I've not seen any since. From your description, you know, the franchise didn't go in a very good direction for a fair while, and I think I just no. switched off. So the they're making the last one at the moment. I think next year you get the tenth one with um, Jason Momoa as the villain, and then that'll be it. Yeah, that's got to be one of the longest running. Oh, I watched the ninth one last year, and you followed um, Finn Diesel through eight films and he's all about talking about his family and how we're a family it's, we're all family and then suddenly um his brother who's never been mentioned before played by john cena turns up as a spy 
And you're thinking, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> but not really in a very good way, unfortunately. Much as I love John Cena, he could be brilliant in, in, if you've seen him in Peacemaker. He's fantastic. Well, TV one, series recently. One thing you can say for it is they're obviously hugely popular because um, I know so many people talk about it and there's a lot of uh, appeal for teenagers and younger audiences in general. But yeah. The matter is the box office, which is not always a mark of a good film, but the box office tells you that for one of the most successful franchises ever, for the fact they've bothered to make what's going to be 10 uh, altogether, yeah. take out Bonds. There's not many other things. Like Police Academy didn't quite get that high, did it? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else that's gone that long, really. Can't James Bond. Bond. Bond's the only one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Carry on films. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> are they in sequence? Are they sequels? To yeah, not really, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. No, but but if you're a bit sniffy and a bit snotty about things like that, just watch the fifth one. Give it a go. Suspend your disbelief and just go with it, and you're you're in for a proper Friday night pizza and beer, a bit of fun. All right. Are you ready for mine? Number five. Yes. Right. I'm quite curious to see how many we've got overlapping. I'm yes. suspecting two or three, but we shall see. Well, what, what I've done, based on a, a quick conversation and also just the first bit on there today, is I've reviewed my number five just on the criteria basis a little bit. But I'm going to talk about, if I may, about the one that missed out before I go into my top five. So, um, first of all, I do love classics, the classic Hollywood films and classic black and whites. I really get my teeth into. And when I started this, I had an assumption in my head that I was going to have two um, classic black and white Hollywood films in my top five. I've only got one of those two. Um, the one that missed out is The Asphalt Jungle, um, okay. which is based on the fact that um, I don't think it's better than the other one I've got in there. You've gone I- for the killing, haven't you? I might have got the killing in there. <laughs> we can see Mr. Mr. Newman. But um, yeah, the Asphalt Jungle just missed out on another day. And if I'd been able to see it more recently, yeah. maybe I would have changed my view. And, and this is typical with my top fives. It's interchangeable. But um, that, that one missed out. The one that's missed out due to the criteria, though, uh, again, I thought was two classic Hollywood black and whites. I thought there could be anything up to two French films squeezing into this Yeah, top. yeah. Because there's some interesting... when we get to the end, we'll do that also. Also, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one I want to mention at this point um, is Bob Le Flambeur, because I've I've been familiar with the works of Jean Paul Melville or Jean Paul Moyville, I think they he pronounces it himself. He has named himself after uh, Melville, the author. Moby yeah, Dick. Yeah. Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah, film. So it's not a French name, but um, anyway. Well, if he's got Ville on the end, then it could yeah, it could be could be argued, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of semi-French. Um, that's the one that just missed out. It's a film I saw a long time ago. I watched it again today, actually, with a view to putting it in. And essentially, this film's pretty interesting because what it does, it sets up a very long build-up to a heist where it's... I mean, there's so much to talk about in this film, so I won't go into too much detail because it's not in the five. But essentially... This is well, Bob Le Flambeur. Bob Le Flambeur, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is... I've never heard of that. Right, well, check it out. Sorry. Too. So it's about some guy called Bob who's a Flambeur. Is that right? Yes, which is a gambler, a slang word. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, essentially, um, he is a former um, hood who's just turned yeah. into gambling, and he's gradually whittling down whatever monies he'd assembled and to the point where he needs to do a heist. Um, what's interesting about this film is Melville is a, a director who is essentially credited with being one of, if not the, um, 
influences that led to the French New Wave, yeah. uh, which is a, a famous movement in mainly the 60s, but also slightly into the 50s, um, French cinema, um, which was a mixture of a tribute and a sort of a, an aside to classic Hollywood film, particularly gangster films, film noirs. All of those French filmmakers in that era were absolute lovers of classic gangster films, which yeah. I love. I absolutely love a black and white with a James Cagney yeah. or Rocky Bogart or yeah. you know, George Roth, yeah. whatever it is. Um, and this is basically a love letter to that. But they've put a, a French twist on it. They've, they've got the Max on, they've got the hats, they've got the, the chain smoking, and they've got the guns, the smoking pistols, all that sort of stuff. But what, they've, what, what Mulville does, and he's done this with another film called Le Cercle Rouge, which is the Red Circle, yeah. um, uh, both interesting films, are very different. This this is the earlier film, Bob Lefamba. It's um, essentially a film where a guy down on his luck decides to reprise his, his criminal career. He's got a kind of like a protege type character. He's got an old hand friend of his, a couple of other people he recruits over a very long period of time. What they do with the femme fatale, which is the typical cliche of uh, or one of the cliches of film, yeah. those kind of fall away to the sideline. There are women characters in it, but they essentially don't matter in these stories. It's very much a male environment, those films. And I would have definitely put this in, A, because it's so interesting in a number of multi- faceted ways in terms of what it does with the genre uh, of the American gangster film yeah. around the, the French flavor they put into it, the performance by a not very well-known actor who's perfect for the role, a kind of like a French Burt Lancaster type. Character. Oh, okay. Um, and the, the fact that they just play around with it and they take ages, let, letting it slow burn. And essentially they've got, and he does this with the Circle Rouge as well. He's got this, this concept of the heist as being something they're going to do, which is very well planned. And they, he goes into a few technical details about something to do with physics and some really odd bits. And if you do this, but do that with this temperature, yeah. this amount of pressure on a lock somewhere, you know, he, he goes into a bit of fiddly detail like that. In Le Circle Rouge, they, they do the heist, and it's an interesting film, but didn't, didn't make the list. With Bob Le Flambeur, the heist never actually happens, which is an oh, interesting and that's the reason I didn't include it. Yes, so it's a bit yeah. of a spoiler for when you see it. Sorry, but um, essentially I felt the fact that the heist doesn't happen is probably an excuse to kind of leave that one out for this particular list. Maybe we'll do Melville. As a, we we um, should do French New Wave at some point, and I'm rubbish. I know, I know very little yeah. about it. You'll yeah. enjoy some of it, actually. Yeah, some I think you're, I think you're right, yeah. Um and some of it isn't. I, I I don't get on with Jean-Luc Godard much at all, although he's made two or three really good films. Yeah. But um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see see how that pans out later. But yeah, I, I in the end excluded it on the basis that it didn't actually do the heist. But yeah. the fact it doesn't do the heist is the brilliant twist in this story that yeah. actually in the end, it's not about the heist. It's about other elements. Yeah. It's great where it takes it. It's very outrageous. It's quite audacious. And it's groundbreaking at the era when it's made, which is in the fifties, um, yeah. and set in the fifties. Um, he's made. Other I, I have watched a couple of French films that we may or may not talk about, and if we don't, then we'll uh, we'll pick them up at the end. Well, I'll also put in at this stage is to mention, and this is one of my big gaps. And believe it or not, still unable to watch. I haven't seen Rafifi, which is a well-known. Um, it's brilliant. Film. All right, oh, it's great. That I watched it last film. week. It's yeah. it, 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 it did. I, I, I'll confess on that. It didn't make my list, but it would have been six or seven. Yeah. It came very, very 
Fast and Furious Five, just just <laughs> over <a> second. <laughs> um, Rafifi, it's it's great. It's a fantastic, and it seems a very very. It, it's got a real kind of seventies feel to it. It's got quite nihilistic, but there's the, the heist in it is is one of the best ones you've seen because it's all it's only only a couple of takes. It goes on for about twenty minutes, and there's no dialogue whatsoever. You can yeah. just see them whispering to each other and doing hand signals because they have to be quiet. And just watching it unfurl and the well, they've all got their own jobs and he has to do that bit and it's that it's fantastic cinema it's done really yeah. really well it's, it's a great film well 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 worth watching yeah Jules Dassin, Jules Dassin. And, yeah and he, he'd come he'd come back from Hollywood to make the film I believe because he'd had some issues after a couple of yeah. successful Hollywood films over there but yeah it's interesting you say that because Le Cirque Rouge the other film I mentioned by Melville or Moyville is um a very quiet film there's a lot of silence in that. Actually. I haven't. I haven't seen. I went to watch it, and then it was two and a half hours long, and I didn't have time. And I watched yeah. the Killing instead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's got it's got the, the high scene in that as it's very quiet because they are just plodding along doing their job. There's no yeah. particular reason to be quiet. I mean, aside from obviously not like using megaphones, they're not really going to draw attention to themselves. Yeah. They've, they've dealt with the guard on duty. They've dealt with the security system in a lot of complicated detail. Yeah. Um, and that heist does actually happen this time, but yeah, they're they're, they're silently going about their work, almost like um, they're doing a delicate just artwork rather than a, a heist. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that that seems to be a French trait by the sounds of it. Yeah, um, no, definitely. So apologies for anyone that's seen that and is screaming at us for not having that in there because I know you, you need to put it on the list. Yeah, yeah. So what I have got my number five to square up to your Fast and Furious five. <laughs> um, I've I've gone popular as well actually. I've got a couple of populist ones in my top five, and the first of them comes at number five. It's a film you may or may not have in yours as well. I know you want okay. to the film. It is Baby Driver. Which, oh, great film! Again, it, this is one that's dubious as to whether it fits the criteria in one sense. It's not a great deal about the heists themselves. There's a little bit of detail about the planning. Um, I mean, the first heist is already happening at the beginning of the story, mm. isn't it? basically at the, the, the opening, the main opening scene, anyway. Um, but the, the there's there's two other heists that happen during the story. I think that's right. Is it two or yeah. three? Um, so, in, in one sense, it's not a big job. There's more than one, and there's not a great deal in the planning side of things. But I found this film just really. Oh, it's great. It's it's the Cornetto trilogy's man, of course, himself, um, a director who's. I mean, this is a, obviously a departure from what he's done before. Um, he's clearly done it because he got the budget to do it, so which makes sense, of course. Um, but I think so many directors who are doing interesting work and then get the big budget are pretty disappointing, or at least. If, yeah, if I, mean, I, I don't know. He got the big budget for Scott Pilgrim, didn't he? I thought that was a strange yeah. film, but it, but yeah. very watchable, very he, interesting. He's made going the on. transition, hasn't he? I think, yeah. other, and he's done decent things with. Sorry, the, we're talking about Edgar Wright. I don't think Edgar Wright. Sorry, yeah, Edgar Wright. Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah. Um, and I think it's partly due, due to probably not having any adverse interference from producers. Yeah, more, more sway over the um, over the creative. You, side. D- you, d- you definitely when you watch one of his films, you, they definitely have an Edgar Wright feel. Yeah, you, you've got the kind of quick cuts and you've got the dialogue, but more than anything, you know you're going to get a really good soundtrack. And this yeah. is the best of the pot. Lot. Yeah, I think I think this. I could argue this is. I think it's his best film. I think it's the best soundtrack um, he's used. The soundtrack is completely and utterly. Uh, indelibly linked to the story. It, it is yeah. part of the story. Um, I think it's um, 
I think her name's, I can't remember her first name, Gonzalez, who plays um, John Hamm's character's um, missus in the yeah. in the story, one of the heist uh, people. Uh, she, the actress, said um, that uh, this was essentially another character in the story, the music. Yeah. The story is um, you've got a guy called Baby, or at least that's his nickname. We discover right at the end of the film, very small plot <laughs> twist, a plot spoiler, that his name is actually Miles, which is very <laughs> um But he's known as Baby, so Baby Driver, that's the title. He has, due to a, a childhood accident, which killed both his parents, he has uh, tinnitus, which has caused him to have as anyone will know, obviously, major humming in his ears. I know very well. <laughs> you have it yourself, don't you? Yeah. yeah. I, I, this must be your number one then. Anyway, we'll find out later. But, he, I mean, he uses headphones and music to drown out the humming. And he's always been into music. I mean, even in the car accident, he's listening to music. His mum yeah. was a singer. And even from a childhood age, he's listening to you know, on an iPod. And... In the story, he has a load of different iPods. I think it's just to do with memory, yeah. isn't it? They, someone would have a load of iPods if they've got that many songs to listen to. And he's got different iPods for different moods. And he is a getaway driver for a, a, a basically a villain, a, a high-level gangster, played by Kevin Spacey, which when I watched it yeah. back, I forgot. I kind of forgot he was in it. And it's surprising he was in it. It's 2017, so this must have been borderline one of his last films Just, yeah before he got cancelled yeah yes exactly uh for reasons we won't go into here but um essentially he's he's a good actor kevin spacey when all said and done oh he's very watchable he's very good in this um and he he essentially orchestrates different heists with different people so john ham who of course is famous the lead in yeah. uh, amongst other things plays one of the um one of the crew his other half is in it as well in terms of his on-screen other half. And then there's a collection of other characters, one of whom is a very menacing uh, guy called Bats, again, obviously a code name, uh, played by Jamie Foxx, who turns out to be yeah. well, the main adjutant in the storyline, I guess you would say. Baby is the getaway driver. He is an immensely amazing driver. That's the concept. He's always loved cars. He's always been able to handle cars really well. Um, he's become indebted to Kevin Spacey's hoodlum character due to having happened to have stolen his car uh, with a load of gear in the back. And um, on the basis of that, he became, I think, by decree, uh, indebted to him for a while. And the deal was he would do a series of uh, heists where he would be the getaway driver and he would pay off by doing those heists, um, a number of them, I think, yeah. uh, at the end of which... He supposedly is square, but of course... That yeah, that's never right. going to happen, is it? Yeah. yeah. He, he is indeed square in terms of supposed monetary debt, but he's uh, essentially told he has to do another, one more... Um, that's one of the tropes, isn't it, of the high school? Yeah. One last job. Last job. Exactly. Then I'm going to retire. Yeah. Now, we mentioned the music. The music is superb. I love a whole range of music and there's plenty of it in here may not love every track but it just punches along the whole way through what i love about this film even though it's a modern day film 2017 so few films regardless of their running time are as tight as they could be and this film doesn't waste a second all of his films are like that you, yeah you, the screenplays the music the direction it it there's not a single minute lacking or could have been added it's just perfect yeah. And he's been like that right the way back to Shaun of the Dead. 
And he does. He is the writer on this, as as usual, as well. We should say. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He doesn't waste any time. It's tight. It's well written. There's some good punchy dialogue in there. There's a few funny bits in there. Bits of charmy bits to do with him and a possible love interest that comes into it. Lily James, who plays that role, um, and. I think it's great. I think it's all action. Oh, it's, it's a great film. film, yeah. I often switch off watching action films. I get bored because it's just a bit too overkilly. Maybe that'll be the case with Fast and Furious, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. um, but in terms of this, I was engaged the whole way through. You're tense at the right moments. You're thrilled, you're worried. You're, you, you, you can kind of see how the story's playing out in general terms, but the finer details are, are kind of, they keep you on edge and there's a few surprises in there. Yeah. Um, I just found this film hugely entertaining, and I thought it deserves a place, you know, in the no, top five. I think it's not in my top five, um, but yeah. it's a film I genuinely do love. Yeah, that, yeah. You could pick the classics. I love all of his films. I thought the last one we spoke about, and we did our best films of last year. I thought it was a little disappointing, but it was still a great film. Hmm. It just yeah. wasn't as good as what we come to expect from him. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And um, I think it's. I said you can pick pick and choose loads of classics through the eras, um, but I do think it's difficult sometimes to balance how good something is when it's so so new. Uh, okay, this isn't that new; it's five years old as we as we record this, but um, it's still pretty new in terms yeah. of you know revisionism and everything over time. I think it's just old enough to to get a bit more perspective and decide where it fits in the tome of ice movies. But I think. As I said earlier, this is interchangeable. It could drop out another time. I picked a top, a top five uh, highest film, and this does. By the way, I don't like the expression "movies" normally. I don't. I don't use it very often, but that seems to be the right word to describe this subgenre, doesn't it? Heist, yeah, definitely. Highest films doesn't sound right. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's Baby Driver at number five. I'm trying to think if there's any other bits of info I had noted. Um, I don't think there is really. It's just generally got good. John, John Ham, you mentioned him. I find him. Quite well, not uh, not frustrating, um, but he 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 was brilliant in Mad Men, and yeah. I thought he's going to come and become an incredible leading man, and he's going to be like George Clooney was like twenty years ago, or, or Brad Pitt, or whatever. Yeah. It just doesn't really seem to have happened for him. He seems to just have, to have cameos and just turn up here and there in smaller films. I'm, yeah. Yeah, it, I'm not really quite sure what's going on. He needs to fire his agent and get on and get, get yeah. to, I mean, get something Man, else. Mad Men superb. He's great in this. His his and his his partner is sort of like a relationship partner's um, um, characters are kind of almost cartoonish. Um, he, I think the general concept, if you, if you do think that Jamie Foxx's character has hit the nerve correctly about what his background is, he makes a guess about what it is. And from the reaction of John Hamm's character, it looks like that is yeah. correct. Um, the, the notion is that he's come from the city, fallen on hard times, fallen in love with a hooker, and he's ended up just kind of doing it for drug money, so he can yeah. get some money on gambling and drugs and things like that. Um, if it, if his uh, his prediction of what his his background is is to be believed, which I think it is, um, so I guess you could say he's playing another city type as well, yeah, uh, Wall Street guy. But um, he's brilliant. But he is in brilliant. Everything. Yeah. yeah. Of I just brilliant. I just like to see him do more leading. Man stuff, yeah. Because yeah, he, I mean, he was in Top Gun Maverick, wasn't he? As uh, one of the. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, he's, he's got one of the kind of like the senior military guys, kind of cyber yeah. sort of thing. It's not a particularly juicy role, but you're right. He's not really done enough, I don't think, to justify his talent. He's a, he's a good actor. Yeah. yeah. But that's it for me on Baby Driver. Over to you, Phil. Unless you've got so number four. Well, right. Let's get this out of the way. When you say heist film, this is the first one that always jumps to mind well to my mind anyway it's oceans 11 from 2001 
guess what I've got? Number four. <laughs> as soon as you started that sentence, I knew what you were going to say. And um, you ask you to, you mentioned heist movie, and this is that is this is the kind of go to really, isn't it? I think. Yeah this this is pretty much the 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 um, template yeah, for a heist exactly. film. Exactly. Albeit it's not the oldest, but it's uh, it, it pretty much hits all of the notes, doesn't it? So very, very brief synopsis. Uh, Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney and his 10 accomplices, obviously Ocean's Eleven, uh, plan to rob three Las Vegas 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 casinos in the same night simultaneously. Remake of the 1960s Rat Pack film uh, of the same name. I haven't seen the original, I'll be honest. It's not Um, that great, actually. No, that's why I didn't watch it. But I mean, it's got a proper ensemble cast. Um, yeah. Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle, Andy Garcia, Julia Roberts, Elliot Gould, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Carl Reiner. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is it's, it's the uh, it's the kind of cast people dream any director would dream of, quite frankly. The, the main thing, I mean, Baby Driver is a very very cool film. I think this is probably the coolest, most effortlessly cool film ever made and i think that's a quite a difficult thing to pull off you can try and be cool but to just produce something like this that is just 100 percent cool all the way through uh it, i think it's really really well done I'm not a big fan of steven soderbergh many of his other films but this i thought is just absolutely fantastic yeah he likes a bit of Clooney, of course um steven soderbergh and yeah i think this film i mean it's clearly high budget it's just purely for because of the cost if nothing else um and it's clearly high profile. It got a lot of publicity, and it was always going to do well, I think, to a certain degree. And it, and for once, there was a film, it's a remake of a film that had plenty of improvements that you can make. Yeah. It, again, you've got an ensemble cast, as obviously you would have in the first one as well. It was the famous Rat Pack for the first one. This is definitely a better film. It's punchy, it's glossy, it's got the sepia tones that Stephen yeah. is quite well known for in other films like Out of Sight and things like that. Um, Which is another film that I half considered as a heist film and then didn't. Yeah, yeah, it's on the long list. <laughs> Very good it? film, though, well worth watching. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in both cases, the soundtrack are, are important. In fact, interestingly, I, I didn't really buy soundtracks um, when I was younger, but I, I do remember I got both of those soundtracks, Out of Sight and Ocean's Eleven, um, because it's got a, a cool, funky, punchy, jazzy, funky type yeah. of vibe to it, hasn't it? A lot of definitely. The, it's um, instrumental, but um, but kind of upbeat, up tempo. Um, again, the pace doesn't let up. A bit like ba- Baby Driver, it doesn't particularly waste any time. There's a lot of content in this film, though. Yeah. Whereas Baby Driver is character uh, based as well. It's about him, the relationship he has with this girl, uh, why he is who he is, and what he's doing. And, and there's the interesting notion that the whole story of Baby Driver is built around Edgar Wright's concept from 20 years ago yeah. to have a, a character and build the story around that. Whereas this, it's built around the heist itself. The, yeah. The whole the whole notion of this one big heist, which is a big heist. I mean, we're talking hitting three interconnected through security reasons, um, casinos, all run by the same guy who's who's carted off with um, Julia Roberts, which is George Clooney's ex-wife. Yeah, ex-wife, yeah. Andy Garcia playing the casino owner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of cool guys. I mean, this is brand new. It is. I I mean... Slightly later time, but still. But he, yeah, he, he, he's, so, he's so watchable with this. And the two of them, you genuinely think these people are really our best mates, the way that yeah, they just exactly. rub off I each mean, other. They're, they're all know. cool. They're all good looking on there. I mean, Clooney's at his best. Damon's still 
quite young and up and coming at this stage, but he again looks cool. Yeah, Don Cheadle, who's playing an English guy for some reason. One of the worst accents. Yes, it's not. Apparently, not he cool. went over to London and he spoke to people and researched it. Clearly, tourists. Then. I'm putting <laughs> it at my third worst American attempt at an English accent ever. Dick Van Dyke's number one, surely. Dick Van Dyke's number one. <laughs> Keanu Reeves in uh, Dracula is number two. Oh, yes. <laughs> Don Cheadle in this, number three. Absolutely appalling. <laughs> my daughter watching was like, Is he Australian? It's like, No, he's supposed to be a continent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he next in line to Keanu Reeves for bad accents. From he's essentially not a great actor at all. I think he's a pretty terrible actor. He's brilliant, but Don no, he's not. No, he's not brilliant. <laughs> Don Cheadle is a good actor, but yes, yeah. you know his forte. That's one of the few flaws in this film. But it's it's very populist, isn't it? it? Get, yeah, it, it, get, it gets a lot of things right, and hmm. I think with a lot of these films, and this is very much the blueprint of it, there are two very, very difficult balancing acts to make. One, this is about a load of criminals. You even see George Clooney come out of prison at the beginning of the film. You've got to make criminals likeable. Yeah. Two, is the real the other real balancing act, and we probably might talk about this in some of the other films, is how much of the kind of the, the trick, the heist, does the director give away? Because the, the audience wants to feel part of it and feel cleverer than the people that are being fooled, yeah. but they don't want to think that they know everything. They yeah. want to have a bit of a surprise and a bit of a shot and oh, that's clever. Is this the same the time? Thing, the other the other trait of the or the other motif of um, heist films, heist movies, is um, the, the cross or the double cross. Yeah, and yeah. It's that can come in. Oh, you think it's this? Then it's this. Um, it's, it's, but it's very. I mean, it's it may make. I mean, Stephen Sober makes it look easy here but it's a very i mean very difficult to to juggle quite yeah. a lot of things that he's got managing, going on this film and he nails it you're managing all of that acting talent for a pretty detailed plot and you really do see the plot yeah. of heist in a lot of detail they're using you know virtual reality graphics you know they're obviously it was at the beginning of that era where that sort of stuff was around and clearly these guys with their resources funded by one of the characters have those resources to show these you know, these interactive graphics to explain yeah. quite a bit of detail how this is going to work out. Blueprints, diagrams of buildings, all of that yeah. stuff. This I love all that. I, I'm really such a nerd. When they start getting the plans out, you're going to have to do this and drill there. And you're, how are you going to get past this? I'm just 100% focused on that. You are not, Phil. T- tell me you're not pausing it and scrutinising every frame. No, not quite. <laughs> But the other thing with this film is, is that I, I really like is it, it amalgamates two subgenres, you could say, the heist film itself and also the con film as well. Yes. There's a number of films I didn't include which are con films, which are... Oh, one like, of my films is, is very much a con film. I, I think like. I know what that's going to be. Yeah, yeah. I, think you probably I didn't do. include it because I wasn't sure it was so much. Yeah, but it, fit, it fits so many of the other criteria. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. We'll get on to that in a minute. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I love con, con films and con stories. I love Hustle TV. Stories. Yeah. Uh, I love those. And actually the real Hustle where they show how cons can work. Um, yeah. You know, like Marks and Grifters. There's a film called The Grifters, of course. Yeah, John Cusack. Yeah. Yeah. Benning, yeah. yeah. Good yeah. film. Which is a good film, yeah. Um, I love those sort of films. But what this does, it actually adds both of those elements because Matt Damon yeah. is a, he's a trickster. He's a... He's a this sleight of hand guy, he's a con yeah. as well as Neil. He's recruited as the as the eleventh member. Um, they've got the ten. They say, "Is ten enough?" 
they think no, we might need one more, and then they they recruit him. He's nicking some money from a banker on a tube train in um, uh, yeah. Chicago, I think, at the beginning of the story. Uh, Clooney's watching him smiling away, and uh, sort of then recruit. Um, yeah, Clooney, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then recruits him in. Uh, turns out he's the son of one of the escapers yeah. uh, of the heist. But no, it's it's great. It's got those elements. So, so yeah. Matt Damon was the third choice, believe it or not. I mean, some of the people that have been linked with this film. The, originally playing Linus Caldwell um, was supposed to be, which is Matt Damon's character, was Johnny Depp. Apparently he was going to be involved. Oh, yeah. He, I think he was doing something with Tim Burton at the time. Then they got Mark Wahlberg in and then he was, he was in there and then he left to do the Planet of the Apes remake. And uh, sort of Matt Damon got brought in as third choice, and he's he's, he's great in this because he he kind of realizes I can't compete with anybody else in terms of star power, so I'm just gonna you know do, do my character piece in the corner and, and and be the kind of normal person in this to kind of tie all the all the madness together. Yeah, I wonder because this this film is uh, remind me the which year was this? Sorry, the Ocean's... two thousand and one. 2001. So we're talking, so as we speak, 21 years ago now. It's actually gone back away in time, isn't yeah. it? So you can tell when you watch it, it looks slightly dated, not in a bad way, but just no. in terms of the sharpness of screen and all that sort of thing. Um, so the two, the two twins who don't look anything like each other. Yes, not um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're both great. Originally, that was supposed to be the Wilson brothers, Owen and Luke. Oh yeah, yeah, makes sense. Then they were they were got caught working on the Royal Tenenbaums, yeah. and then believe it or not, they they were going to get Joel and Ethan Cohen in to do it. What? Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> and then that, and then Soderbergh cast cast yeah. those two. But other actors that were, and you can pretty when you when you hear their names, you can guess who they were down to play. Um, uh, who were who were kind of in the running and very close to being in this film also were Mike Myers, Bruce Willis, Ewan McGregor, Alan Arkin, and Ralph Fiennes. Yeah, I'm surprised Alan Arkin isn't in this actually. Well, yeah, yeah. I think Carl Reiner must have had that. Yeah. Was Ralph Fiennes going to be the um, Terry Benedict? It, yeah, the uh, the Andy Garcia. I, I don't know, but that's exactly what I'm presuming. And moving on from the actors, there are obviously a number of star-studded cameos in this film as well. You have Siegfried and Roy. Um, who uh, the Austrian musicians who were a big act in um, Vegas at the time before one of them got mauled by his tiger the week after I was in Vegas, believe it or not. Um, and also you have um, Lennox Lewis and Vladimir Klitschko now fighting in Ukraine, in Ukraine his oh, brother right. now mayor of Kiev. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple of other kind of famous people that I didn't really know who they were. Um, hmm. Yeah, I love the contortionist in this. We should mention as well the yeah. Chinese character who's recruited, obviously, and uh, from he's in all three of these. Because we yeah, must mention there are sequels to this. He's in all of these films. I think he might be in the Ocean's Eight, the recent one. And I don't think he's ever been in anything else. Yeah, he's just done yeah. these films. We've got Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen, which is a weird sort of kind of way of doing the sequeling uh, titling, I suppose. But Ocean's yeah. Eight, of course, that followed was the one where all of the characters are. Um, Female, isn't it? Yeah. Is that one? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that one. And also, you've got another film actually, which didn't feature in my five. I don't know if it is in yours, but Widows, which was a kind of like a a similar story yeah, yeah, Ocean's Eight, where you've got that's this, the Steve you know, McQueen one, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's pretty film. brutal. Yeah, it was on my shortlist. Um, essentially, Liam Neeson's character seems to have been killed off, and um, 
then there's a debt to pay basically passed on to his wife, at least according to the people that carry the debt rather conveniently, the criminals. Um, and they threaten pretty aggressively her to uh, come up with the cash uh, or do something to, to, to fund the cash. And they, yeah. they have a notebook and they find the plans for what was planned by Liam Neeson and they carry out the heist. So it's quite conventional, I think, in terms of... It's a mad, it's a mad but when you think about it, so Stephen Queen was an artist. He was like a kind of... Mm. sculptor and painter I think I don't, I'm yeah. not very good on art and then he made that 12 Years a Slave which yeah. is very much a sort of and artistic, state, artistic of statement films, yeah. yeah and then when I made a heist film yeah again it's right. like um, Edgar yeah. Wright actually you know he's, yeah. he's a British director who's done smaller scale projects got the big money and done alright I think he's. It doesn't it almost doesn't feel like a Steve McQueen film. It's sort no, of not doesn't, at all. Doesn't, not not really. Yeah. Once you look at the details of how how he's covered the subject matter, you can see. Yeah. Okay. But it doesn't doesn't have his stamp on it particularly. Having said that, it's a really good film. Um. But yeah. Anyway, that's a digression again. There with widows. Um. But yeah, Ocean's Eleven is really good fun. Number four yeah. for both of us. Yeah. Number four for both of us. How convenient. Saved a bit of time, didn't it? <laughs> All right, back to you, Philip. Should we pause? I need to uh, refresh. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, so we'll we'll have a quick break there and we'll be back with our top threes in just a moment or two. A new podcast part, a new beer, Phil. What are you on now? I'm on, I don't really know how to pronounce this. I think it's La Chouf. And he's not the baddie from Casino Royale. It's a Belgian beer. So it's a lovely it's eight, beer. It's 8%. Um, I, was, I fancied a Belgian beer and I was in the, in the offy and I was, I was looking at this one and another one and the other one was like 9.5%. And I thought, <laughs> no, that's just not going to do anybody any favours, is it? I'll go for the 8% one. That's <laughs> still going to cause plenty of damage, but. Le Chouf is a phenomenal beer. It's really, really nice. And in fact, I was lucky enough to get one uh, on tap when I went to Southampton oh, for wow. a, an away day football match um, a few months ago. Um, I can't remember the name of the pub. It's in central Southampton. I'll have to remember it because we, we've shared Southampton, haven't we, Phil, yeah. in the past. We'll have to talk about that off air. But um, a pretty decent um, brew that. Anyway, really nice. Even better tap on tap. But a very good bottle at this. I, well, you know, it's been a work, busy work day and it's a daily grind. And that's what this tin says. Daily grind. Batch hashtag number one coffee stout uh, review this beer and I do like a coffee stout. It's quite it's there's quite a few of them springing up now. It, yeah. yeah. Well, this this is Moorslutel uh, beer engineers. I think it's from my Dutch collection from my beer. 50 okay. Beer. And I'll show you the tin if you if you can see it on the uh, screen here, Phil. Lovely. Very nice. Very nice. Very very uh, as typical craft beer. Uh, attractive branding. Which is always a winner, isn't it? If anyone wants us to advertise their beers, by the way, feel free to get Yeah, just send them to us and then we'll let you know what we think of them. And if we don't like them, we'll put them in the the third or fourth beer in so that by then we'll like them. (laughs) Yeah, the first beers would have to be liked just as (laughs) And that's why you should go for Le Chef first, actually. But, uh, I don't want to start with an 8% beer. <laughs> it's, just not, it's just dangerous. There may, may not be an end uh, to this podcast if you do that. At least not a natural one, anyway. Uh, right, well... Right, we've... number three. Yep. And this is not what I'm, I'm expecting you to have this on your list. We shall see. Um, you don't see the planning of the heist in this film because there doesn't really be, seem to be much of a pl- uh, plan whatsoever. 
We are, of course, it's Dog Day Afternoon, 1975. Ah. Right, right. Just so, say, I didn't put this in because of the, the planning and just the fact that it's more about something else for me. I didn't really go for it. It's oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a great film. Uh, but over to you anyway for the details. Yeah. So, um, based on a true story, um, a mad <laughs> true story, which we'll go <laughs> into shortly, um, three amateur bank robbers, or one one of them pulls out quite quickly, so there's only really two amateur bank robbers, uh, played by uh, Al Pacino and John Cazala. Yeah. Um, they plan to hold up a bank. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, supposedly uncomplicated heist becomes a bizarre nightmare as everything that can go wrong does go wrong yeah. and yeah as i said it's ba- directed by sydney is it lumet or lumet i'm not quite sure uh, sydney lumet yeah sydney yeah. lumet that seems uh, to be also um did the likes of 12 angry men the hill serpico network um yeah it, it, it's based on the true story of a 1970 this is a 1975 film based on the true story of 1972 robbery and hostage situation by a, a, a guy called john I'm not quite sure, exactly sure of the pronunciation. Right. Uh, I think no, it's something to it. I think. Okay. Um, and Salvatore uh, Naturally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brooklyn, yeah. At a Brooklyn bank. Yeah. Um, it's a true story um, of what happens. But basically, you, the film starts there in the car outside. They go in the bank with the guns. They hold everything up. They want to be out quickly. Suddenly everything just goes completely out of control and these are probably two of the most rubbish bank robbers in the in the history of heists um i mean apparently they i mean al pacino is off the scale mad in this he's full on full al pacino the first time we saw full al pacino really yeah. um when when he go kind of goes completely ott although you know he his, his and, and john Cazale's performance do kind of contain the silliness in this film yeah, and but apparently they they dialed it down, and the original situation that happened here was far 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 madder. So you see you see the two guys who don't really seem to know anything about robbing banks going in. They start going for the money, they start planning everything. Then witness kind of knocks on the door. The police show up. They're inside. They've got hostages. They don't really want to hurt any of the hostages, but they want the hostages to think that they could do. And but. They're both very, very, very sort of desperate for money. And then also obviously as the film goes on, you find out why they're desperate for money. <laughs> and that's sort of put completely kind of, you know, moves the film in a completely different direction, which yeah. is which is fascinating. It's great. So it, it, I mean, this film is now 47 years old. Um feels very kind of like kind of up to the moment, really. So what you do find out later later in the film, if you haven't seen it, it's not really that much of a spoiler. A film like this, you pretty much know what's going to happen all the way through it. You're watching it for the performances and the ambience and everything that's going on. So Al Pacino, he, he's a married guy with children, but he's in love with a trans woman. Um, and he wants to raise the money in it for, so for her to have the uh, requisite operations. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying really not, I'm trying really hard not to sound like a middle-aged white guy explaining this. And apologies. <laughs> a middle-aged straight white guy. Straight. Yeah. Guy. Yes. Um, and John Cazale is, is, is kind of sidekick. He's, yeah. I think he's just there for the money. I think he's been in prison before and he's 
I think he's de dealing with kind of a few um, issues bubbling away under the surface. Um, and then, yeah, everything goes mad. So he gets, you know, the they get a huge crowd that turn up outside the bank and he starts talking to the hostage negotiators. And he starts talking to his trans girlfriend and talking to her on the phone. And yeah. And the, all the crowd cheering them on and the speeches to the crowd, it, it just, it's absolute madness, isn't it? I it's, mean, the whole film is literally set in a bank and outside yeah, it. 90% yeah. of it, probably more, is just set in that kind of one particular set. It almost feels like a play in, in sort of some ways. But, yeah, so I've not seen it recently, but I think it's, yeah, so it's pretty much one setting. Um, brilliant film, stunning acting, great concept. There's been plenty of hostage films, you know, you see them over and over again, but I think... Yeah, without thinking about this in too much detail, I think this is probably the best hostage film I think I've, I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, definitely. Absolute, absolute cracker. As you said, Pacino's on fire. He is at his, he is at peak level. Yeah, <laughs> he's not, he's not going over into sort of hammy territory that you see no, no. a little bit in Heat, which we may or not be talking yeah. about. There's a certain level that he can kind of go over where where he's he. <laughs> he, he doesn't hear. It's kind of there's, there's bits of Serpico about him, isn't there? In this one, and a little bit of bruising, and it's it's kind of it's that era of his filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. He was just the right side of that line, and at his best, he's absolutely super. I hard. mean, uh, so um, he um, is well. He originally dropped out. He dropped out of his film a few times because uh, he's a method actor, and he thought that that may have led him into kind of a gay world that playing a gay character that he wasn't particularly comfortable exploring at that time you've got to remember this is 1975 there's never been a major gay character as far as i'm aware in a in a major kind of not quite blockbuster but a major hollywood film i can't think yeah. of any any and the the um the, the cowboy movie of course as well uh, broke that mountain but yeah but this is 1975 but at yeah, that so, stage yeah i mean yeah, yeah. Plenty more suits, but at that stage, no yeah. major star at that yeah. stage had ever played a gay character, mm. and it was quite a big risk. And I think he was really umming and ahhing about it for a long time. Dustin Hoffman came very close to kind of taking it away from him. Mm. Um, he wanted the character toned down. I think he had a, there was a kiss between him and, and his girlfriend that was originally in the script. He had that taken out. Um, he eventually agreed. Um, and he's absolutely amazing in this. Um, and I think quite a lot, from what I can gather from reading up, quite a lot of the gay gay community were quite supportive. Of, I mean, we're in a situation now where we don't really have, well, we, we shouldn't really be having non-gay actors playing gay parts. This yeah. is kind of where we're going to now. But at that time, it, it was kind of quite groundbreaking. And I think a lot of the gay community were very, very supportive of, the, of his work on this. It's a paradox, isn't it, about playing that, that point you just made about um, gay characters playing gay roles. Actually, in, in one sense, acting is the exact opposite of that. It's doing something you're not. So does it need to be, you could argue, does it need to be a gay... Ben Whishaw would disagree with you. He'd say yeah, he'd just, he, sure would, he, he would never believe it. Probably. And I don't necessarily agree with what I've just said. I'm just throwing... Yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because there's a lack of opportunities for, oh, yeah. for roles where you're playing a character you can be, maybe be more attuned to in this particular instance, I think, yeah, it's true. I mean, Al Pacino did this. He did um, Cruising as well, where he plays a straight yeah. cop who goes undercover in the gay and in particular yeah sort of like the s&m yeah. community 
um, to try and uncover a serial killer. That was an interesting film. That didn't get as good a reception from the gay community. It, it was it was a mixed bag, I think. Yeah, okay, I've never seen that. It was seen as, I think the fact there was, a, you know, it's depicting a a gay, sadistic, murdering character roaming about, I think, yeah. at a sensitive time um, in, in terms of, you know, what was going on in the world at the time. Um, made that rather uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people. At, the, at that stage, yeah. Um, yeah, Al Pacino's playing a straight character, so it's not a gay character, but um, but you know, just the subject matter. But, but yeah. with this film, I think it's superb. We've got mentioned John Cazale. John Cazale. John Cazale. Oh, hey, right, so yeah, the best CV in the history of acting, I think. Yeah, is... ratio wise, it is. Right. Yeah. He made five films. Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Conversation, this, and The Deer Hunter. He was dying of cancer when they made The Deer Hunter. They had to hide the fact that he had cancer from the studio and film all his scenes first in case he died before they finished making it. Um, and I think the fact that I think at that time Meryl Street was, was his boy, was his girlfriend and uh, was kind of like protecting him. But yeah, I mean, five to make five films was just such ridiculously high quality i mean there's an argument all five films he's made are tens or or mostly tens and nines yeah yeah not many not many have got a hit rate like that i mean he was a stage actor before he worked with pacino um so sydney lumet and al pacino they um cast a film between the two of them basically using people that pacino appeared with in his off off broadway productions um and so Kazala he worked with before. Um and it, it's quite it's quite interesting. So he um the, the film's got a very, very documentary kind of type feel. It feels very, very realistic. There's no score at all. For another thing, for a nineteen seventies film, no mu- no musical score whatsoever. It's almost like you're in the in the room with them. It can feel quite kind of claustrophobic. They try to use artificial light wherever possible. Where they weren't able to, they kind of used fluorescent lamps, but they tried to kind of keep it as natural as possible. This is before the invention of the steady cam, a few couple of years before. So the kind of cameramen were using roller skates and wheelchairs to move the camera around because Pacino's walking and wandering all over the place in this film and yeah. running out from one end of the bank to the other to go out and check this and go out and check that. It's just on, constantly on the move, isn't it? It's energetic. Yeah. So Lumet, he um, allowed the. There's quite a bit of ad libbing, I think. Um, so uh, Lumet allowed the kind of that to go on. Pacino's kind of fairly famous Attica speech that was completely improvised that he gives to the crowd. Um, the crowd were weren't really, I don't believe, to be extras. They were people that just turn up to watch a film being made wow. and were sort of cheering everything on. And I think quite a lot of the cast kind of wore their own clothes as well to kind of feel as sort of just normal and natural hmm. as possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, Just um, another note on John Cazale, because um, I, I mean, he pops up in Godfather Three, but that's obviously a retrospective kind of mm. addition to the thing. The only other stuff he's in, he's in um, uh, episodes of NYPD uh, in the sixties, uh, and one of his earliest things in a short film. But apart from that, yeah, I mean, The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Two, Dog Day Afternoon, The Deer Hunter. What five films? The Deer Hunter, I think, re- in revisionist terms, isn't. It's got a lot of problems with that film, and Michael Cimino is a bit of a nut job, to be quite honest with you. I'm not completely a big fan of him. You've got Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken as well, and Meryl Streep, of course. Meryl Streep, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that is some some resume there, isn't it? Uh, lung cancer, of course, from chain smoking, they think, is what got him. Um, I, I th- his ratio is nothing short of amazing. He died at the age of 42, um, and incredible yeah yeah <laughs> no one's ever going to be that are they really no 
I mean, James Dean, I'm not sure where he sits. He's got to be somewhere nearby, isn't he? I don't know. I mean, it's the only other one that's in the same category. Yeah, I, I, we, were, we talked about Rebel Out of Cause. We did the 50s music. It was all right. A lot of people rate it as a classic. I thought it was I good. Love it. It's great. I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't put it on, on a level with any of, any of those. No, but um, a really interesting film. So, yeah, nominated for six Oscars and it just won for screenplay. Didn't, didn't really win for anything else. Um, yeah, based on a true story. So all the actual hostages, um, who, who were kind of part of it, they were all paid $600 for their story. Um, and then, and then that was all basically put up on screen. I think one person sort of tried to work, made a bit more, so they didn't include him. And I think the, the, the guy, um, who it's based on, um, was given seven and a half thousand dollars, which he earmarked for his, uh, his partner's reassignment surgery. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. And the equivalent value, I think, uh, in modern terms is something like 1.3, 1.4 million in terms of what they're attempting to steal the real, the real characters. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, I certainly would cover his... One other thing I noticed, another one of my... I, I didn't realise this until I rewatched it last week, week before. At the end, um, a policeman appears to kind of drive them off to the airport, played by one of my favourite genre actors from the world of sci-fi and horror, Mr Lance Henriksen, playing one of his very first oh. ever uh, sort of film roles. Bishop from Alien Sorry. and Aliens, if you're not sure. Aliens, yeah, he uh, looks very, very young in this film. Right? He's, a, <laughs> he's a, is he an android, isn't he, in Alien or something? I can't remember that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a good actor. He's in a lot of B-movie sort of stuff. Yeah, he? he's great. Video stuff in the 80s and 90s, that kind of a guy. But yeah, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, I love, I love that. Um, speaking of which, when I get to my number three, there's, there's a bit of an interesting cameo in that one as well. I'll give you a little teaser as to what this might be. But... Oh, okay. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute. But any, anything more on Dog Day Afternoon? From um, I, I think that's it. If you haven't seen it, it's a very interesting film. It's yeah. it's well, well, well worth your time. And, uh, yeah. And there's a lot of those films, gritty New York dramas with very good method actors doing very good acting. Um, it's got a certain look to it, hasn't it? The 70s cinema of, yeah. that, of that category um, as well. They, you know, all the films of Scorsese, Coppola, in this case, Lumet as well, who who'd had a kind of like a brighter styled kind of yeah. filmography with um with his sixties work. But those 70s films have a certain look to them up to a point, don't they? Yeah. And the conversation which John Cazale is in as well is another film. So good in that film. Yeah. Right, a complete change of tap. But we're gonna have to do Gene Hatman at one point, just go on a watch. Yeah, aren't we? We've already touched on a couple of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's one for another time. Yeah, absolutely. Um in terms of my number three, it's a complete change of tack. It couldn't be more of a change of tack, actually. There was a couple of films which I was debating to get into the top five, one of which, again, I've excluded based on our criteria. Yeah. Another one I've included based on the criteria. It's the Ealing Comedies. Um, oh. You've got the Lady Killers, which I yes. really feel was about a heist. It, it is, but it, yeah. it's pretty much, it's all over in a minute, isn't it? The, the heist in the story. Yeah. It's not, that's not what that film's about. Oh, so the Lavender Hill Mob thing is the other one, isn't it? Yeah, the Lavender Hill Mob is the other one. And it's that which I've got at number three. Yes. Yeah. Lady Killers um, is, is, it's all a character study. It's very heavy on comedy. Uh, it's kind of almost Alec got Guinness. A, yeah. It's Hitchcockian playfulness to it a little bit. Yeah. Alec Guinness is brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant in that film. We'll probably get on to talking about that another time, I'm sure, yeah. under a different category. But 
The Lavender Hill mob, yeah, I mean, again, with Alec Guinness in um, in sort of the main role, he's playing a very studious, sensible, reliable, honest, stiff, kind of by the book, by the numbers, um, a bank clerk, I guess, of some sort, who has a job to man on the inside of the van um, the transportation of some gold bullion on a fairly regular basis from the bank where he works to another location. And he's, you know, he's, he's um, whiter than white as far as his, you know, his record goes, his reliability. I think there's a comment made early in this film which references just, oh, you know, he, he's, there's not much about him. He's never had a promotion. He's getting on. He's coming towards retirement. But, you know, the only thing you can say about him is he's honest, and um, which has been the case. Yeah. However, of course, the concept of this is he's devised a notion whereby, partly due to his trustworthiness, he can now instigate a heist to steal a very sizable amount of gold bullion. We haven't mentioned, actually, the heists tend to be uh, probably an even split virtually between cash and gold bullion, sometimes jewellery, such as... Yeah, yeah. It's normally cash or gold, yeah, yeah. or diamonds on occasion. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. This this is very much about gold bullion. I suppose you could say James Bond's gold fingers. Gold uh, finger. Or nothing. I didn't include that. don't know if you have. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no. no, no. We, as I said, I think you need to see these films from the the kind of perspective of the criminal rather than the person yeah. going after them. Yeah. So this film, it's direct. I, I mean, I love Ealing comedies. There's the so-called Big Six, which is Whiskey Galore, Lavender Hill Mob, Lady Killers. Um, you've got um, Passport to Pimlico. Um, and what have I missed out? The Man in the What's, White Suit. What? And Whiskey the, Galore, is it? Or? No. Did I not say that? Yeah, Whiskey Galore, if I haven't yeah, said yeah. yeah. And amongst those, this is, this is the, the real heist film. Um, it's directed by Charles Crichton, who is a, a real seasoned campaigner. He's a really yeah. good, solid... Excellent director, doesn't really put a foot wrong. He's been he's directed some superb stuff. And the writer is T.E.B. Clark, um, original screenplay. He's also a stalwart of feeling, amongst other things. Um, you know, this is a very reliable, solid film. Right yeah. Middle years. I haven't seen it. I'm, I'm sorry, I should add that. I, I need to watch this. Oh, well, I, I, there's quite a lot of feeling I haven't watched that I should really watch. Yeah. Well, the good thing with this is I don't have to really plot spoil anything here because it's quite a conventional story. As you can tell from what I've said already, he's he's relied upon, so that gives him an edge. He's able to then, if he can recruit people to help him, he can do this this um, this heist. And essentially, it's quite simple. Once you've got the insider like that, he just needs somebody to. You need distractions, and you need a little bit of muscle to carry the stuff around. That kind of thing. So he's in lodgings. It's a it's a very typical. For me, I mean, we talked about westerns very early. Yeah. We talked about how that feels like a Saturday daytime when you grow yeah. up type of film. The Lavender Hill Mob and the Lady Killers feel like Sunday afternoon at home when you're growing up. Um, that's what it was for me. I think we had a fireplace in our house. And I'm pretty sure I must have watched this on a Sunday. It feels like I should have done if I didn't. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's black and white. It's um, it's your typical British actors in good roles. You've got Alec Guinness, I think. Um, it's I can't remember the name of the guy. Um, got out of my head at the moment. Um, who, who's playing the, the the sidekick? Who he he's in lodgings somewhere in London, and a guy happens upon uh, the, the lodgings as well, who's just moved in, who happens to have a um, a very convenient line of work. He's an artist, amateur wise, but as a job, he's um, I think essentially 
burnt smelting down lead and making lead into um uh eiffel tower souvenirs paperweights and of course there's a notion that you could do that with gold so he's that's the, yeah that's line in. once that happens he thinks right this can go ahead so he recruits him and there's this kind of affability to it it's very middle england it's very black and white cozy sunday afternoon um the characters are, are lovable they're endearing but there's there's a mischief making element to it and then you've got um you mentioned the carry on films earlier on yeah. um, you've got sid james in this film he, he, <laughs> he, he, does he, he do the laugh at all he, not exactly sort of he's got his very distinctive voice if anyone yeah. doesn't know it is sid james basically plays sid james in all the carry on films here he's playing a very he's, he's he, i think he's essentially what what most people what a lot of people would say would be your quintessential sort of 60s english geezer and yes. i think he was i think he was south african but yeah yes he had a, a definitely a south african connection of some sort yeah he he's essentially a spiv slash petty criminal. Uh, you know he'll do he'll do kind of non-violent uh, robberies. That's that kind yeah. of character, and he's playing that right. Apparently, I think he was in line for the dad's army role for the spiv in that. Actually, I think. Oh, okay. At one point, anyway, he, he what they do is they've got a short period of time, and the amusing element is that the bank actually decides they are going to promote Alec Guinness to do something that would mean he wouldn't be able to do this. Yeah. Line. So they have to rush it, and they find a, an unconventional way of recruiting um, a couple of other hands that they need. So they entice a couple of people in. One of them is Sid James, um, and you've got your typical you know, London criminals. And then the, the operation goes ahead. There's some snags, so you've got that motif. Yeah. There. There's a, an amusing scene over in Paris, because the concept is they're exporting these souvenirs to Paris for sale at the Eiffel Tower. And so they go to Paris and there's a, a funny scene there. There's a couple of weird back projection scenes, which which do look a bit weird nowadays. Yeah. Italy and they're a little bit dated. But apart from that, it's such a rip-roaring yard. Oh, I'll have to watch that, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a few of those evening films that I haven't got around to. I'm going to have to, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and... Um, I think there's not much more to say about it, really. I wouldn't want to spoil it for you or for anyone that hasn't seen it, but it is a classic British film. It's a classic feeling yeah. comedy. And um, you've got in Alec Guinness, a, a, one, of, one of the character actors. Well, he can I, do anything, can't he? Brilliant. Apparently, he used to hang around in London and follow people along the street randomly and start imitating their walks to try and get into different random character. Um, just just for the sake of it, just to yeah. tell his acting skills. Um, he's brilliant. He can turn his hand to anything, as you said. You know, we all know him, of course, as Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Um, but he, his range is incredible. And in both this and The Lady Killers, um, yeah. he has very different roles, both within that general, sitting nicely within that concept of the Ealing comedy. Um, I highly recommend it. Great film good fun and it stands the test of time you know we're looking at a black and white film from the 50s but it is a very very good film and i highly recommend it um and it's got 7.5 on imdb i think that's underrated actually just looking at it yeah yeah shocking behavior (laughs) (laughs) it's a great film okay fantastic back to me for number two then yeah yeah so i've pushed the the uh, kind of <laughs> the definition a little bit in this one, but this oh, is just, yeah. this this is just a great <laughs> film that you get to see them kind of like um, planning it and the heist um, as they go through. 
Um, I have gone through the 2010 Christopher Nolan film Inception. Ah, yes. I do, I do I love, love a bit of Christopher Nolan. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so, a the difference, isn't it, this one? It's a kind of film noir sci-fi heist, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, so um, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Cobb, a thief, who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream-sharing technology, and he's given the inverse task of planting an idea in the mind of a CEO that his tragic past may doom the project and his team to disaster. Yeah. Um, this is this is an incredible film. Um, so written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, it's got a fairly large ensemble cast. Um, Ken Watanabe, Marion Cotillard, Elliot Page. A lot of the Christopher Nolan regulars are in it. Cillian Murphy, Tom Hardy, Michael Caine, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He does use a lot of the same actors. Um, yeah. So, I mean, going back a bit, so after the first film, I think everybody knows would be Memento, which is a fantastic film. He then did the Al Pacino film, Insomnia. After completing that in about 2002, he presented Warner Brothers with an 80-page treatment for a horror film based on Dream Stealers. And then think off, on thinking about it, he thought, the scope of this is so much larger and I'm not quite sure I'm ready for it yet. So he parked it, went off and did uh, the Prestige and the Batman trilogy and then felt that he was kind of ready to kind of do it. He then finessed the screenplay quite a lot. Um, mm. what, he obviously was box office draw by then, but Batman made a lot of money and he was uh, given it basically a free budget to go off and make his film. Um, he, yeah. I was going to say that, that that was a sensible move, actually, because I think it needed those other yeah. films and that extra experience and that extra uh, reassurance from the studios, probably, to to give him that extra bit of money yeah. you need to make it well, as good as it was. So he said the kind of key to the script was wondering what would happen if several people could share the same dream. And the majority of this film is set in dream worlds. There's very little of it that actually kind of happens in, in the kind of in the in the real world, so to speak. He got DiCaprio in, he kind of rejigged the role for him, making his character kind of the driving force of the film. Uh, brought Marion Cotillard in as his um is his wife. Very much because there's a lot of film noir in it. She's very much a kind of classic femme fatale when you yeah. think when you kind of think about it. Um it's a proper blockbuster. Um it was filmed in Tokyo, UK, France, Morocco, Los Angeles, and Canada. Um it's all, all around the world, like a lot of his films. Um each so in this people go into dreams and then they can go into dreams within dreams and you have th these kind of different levels of dreams and each location was kind of made to sort of stand out from the other locations of, of differing dream levels so that you could kind of tell the difference of what's going on because it's quite cerebral and there's quite a kind of quite a lot going on and um, I mean I think Mark Commode says it that this film shows it's possible for blockbusters and art to be the same thing which yeah. is yeah, very, yeah, very, very he, much what it is. Famously, advocates of Christopher Nolan in general, and this film in particular, as the benchmark for that exact concept that you don't have to have just blockbusters that are brainless or thoughtful films that are smaller scale. You can mal amalgamate the two. He, he says that there's um, a little bit of patronization in terms of how intelligent the audience could be yeah. for blockbuster levels of, of reception, um, the numbers of people turning up. Um, it really it was groundbreaking as well because of the bendy um, the bendy buildings and roads. Yeah, and all that. And all that. Was but there is, a lot, believe it or not, not that much CGI in it. 
it's a lot of practical effects it's a lot of model work all the big kind of mountain fortress at the end and that kind of mm. thing they they try to make it as believable as possible yeah. not kind of the cgi ridiculousness that you get in quite a lot of nolan's oh. got there's a ruggedness to the looks of nolan's films isn't there yeah both in the batman stuff even audibly with the with the bane character in the in that one um but um, I think in... Well, in yeah, you, he definitely just... has his own look. Yeah. I think when, when they came to market this, they spent a lot of money on this film and they spent a lot of money marketing it. And they kind of marketed it, uh, Warner Brothers, as a sort of sequel to the Christopher Nolan brand, if that makes sense. Yeah. Rather than saying, well, you've watched The Prestige and the Batman films and Insomnia and Memento. This is kind of, you know, the next one in the kind of similar way to what people do with Quentin Tarantino. You know that they they have a brand and you know kind of what you're going to get. Yeah, I think that you've mentioned the word cerebral and I think that's that's really important in Nolan films because I think going back to Memento, you know, it's about the brand, it's about memory and getting things, the the narratives out of sequence and you have to piece it back together as a puzzle. But also the the, the character himself is trying to do that too, which is an interesting notion. He moves around with other ideas, but then he comes back to it with Inception. It's very much a cerebral film and you could say... Even Batman is the thinking man's version of Batman. Yeah, it's a superhero film that I can watch without getting yeah, yeah. starting playing on my phone. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And the Prestige is an interesting. All of this stuff, it, it at least gets you thinking. Yeah, I think you know it's great that there is a thoughtful blockbuster out there. I, I'm not so keen on one of his later films. But maybe we'll Tenet get... wasn't that great. Really, yeah, let's be honest. I, I thought it was pretty poor, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that was disappointing. Know. Everyone's going to have a bad egg once in a while, but his body of work, I'm sure we'll get on to covering him in a separate episode. Yeah. He's brilliant. And this is a great film. I think yeah, very I smart. I mean, there's a lot of symbolism and allegory and that kind of thing in it. One of the other big takeaways from this is the kind of the, the very last scene. There's a lot of speculation with the ending of, is that reality or is, mm. is it a dream? And I, I love films like that. It's like Blade Runner. Is he a, is he a replicant? The whole spinning, to- what, yeah. what, 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 the spinning top thing. Yeah, um, and he gets asked all the time. Mm. And um, Christopher Nolan, is, is it or isn't it? And he, he said, you know, it's deliberately ambiguous. Yeah. Make of it what you want to make of it. I love endings where you, you talk about it down the pub afterwards. Or Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I love the fact that, they made it. It's a brilliant film. It's a completely unique kind of idea. And it's not a franchise. They went, here's your film. We're not going to come back and make three. We're not, it's not the Matrix where we're going to come back and make it look rubbish in future films or do a TV spin-off or anything like that, which is quite surprising because I imagine there would be quite a high demand for it, but there's never been any talk of it. He's gone off. He went off to, you know, do, I think it's Dunkirk or whatever next. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I think, uh, yeah, exactly. His films, they're pretty visceral as well. I think there's another word you could use to describe his stuff. Um, always interesting, always worth it. He's half American, half English now, I think. He's, he's a kind of Americanized Englishman. He's, it's yeah. weird because I think he grew up a bit in, in the States and he grew up a bit in England. His yeah. brother, um, Jonathan, um, has got a massive American accent and he's got an English accent. Yeah, um, and I think the reason was because his brother put on American accent when he went to school because you know he wouldn't get bullied. And he's now he's the guy that now does that uh, Westworld TV series kind of oh, does, does, yeah, does do yeah. stuff with his brother. Yeah, yeah Christopher matter. Nolan's very English. Yeah, I know, I know an Anglo-Irish family. Well, it's an Irish family living in London who uh, are 100% Irish in terms of parentage and everything. And two of them have English accents, and the third one, the youngest one, has maintained an Irish accent because that notion of 
putting on English accents and eventually just appropriating it as your actual accent versus somebody who the third in line of the three wanted to maintain yeah. the the original um, heritage, you could say. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And I, so I can believe that, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, everything know. about, everything pretty much about Christopher Nolan film, the script, the effects, the cinematography... Yeah. Is all it's going to be George? I mean, it's won four Oscars, so all in the technical mm. categories. Um, the score on this, I think, is pretty good as well. It's it very, very much so. It's done by Hans Zimmer, it's very kind of electronic and sort of mm. dense. That's and it was written cool. simultaneously while the filming was going on, so they could match Leonardo DiCaprio's character and mm. it, like his feelings to the kind of music that's going on. And there's a kind of Morricone esque kind of guitar motif that's played by Johnny Marths, who used to be in the Smiths, that kind of kind of, kind of, kind of comes and goes as well. And, and very, very well done. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of throbbing soundtracks he has. I think it's a yeah. bit over the top in the the later work. But this this is an interesting film. I, I wonder what to make of it. I've still only seen it once at the cinema when it first came out. I didn't include it. I just thought I, it was a bit of a lazy decision, but I thought you could you could definitely argue I watched it, it again because I wanted an excuse to watch it. Yeah, again. I knew it. I knew it. But <laughs> it's I, I, my you, sort of thing. Exactly. I love a bit of sci-fi. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and you could certainly and big, argue. big big kind of abstract concepts like this. Mm. Is, yeah, that's, that's my that's my thing. You know. It's certainly you can argue it as a heist film. I kind of argued my way out of it and thought I've got so much I want to put in here. I've got an excuse to kind of leave that one and maybe yeah. leave it till we talk about Christopher Nolan one one month, I'm sure. But yeah. um, it'll certainly feature in my top five, I would imagine, when we come to do that one. Um yeah, great film. I recommend all of his work really. Uh yeah. much all of it. Apart from Tenet. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the Oppenheimer tra- trailer dropped today, and that's looking equally good with a lot of the same cast. So we'll, we'll get to see that next summer, next year. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Phil, I suppose that's your number two, isn't it? So time for my number two. Unless you've got any more to say on this. No, no, that's great. Right now, I mentioned earlier something um, you you predicted was in my top five. Yeah, you thought it was what was it? Just remind the us. The killing. And I have The Killing at number two. Yeah. Which, uh, Great film. This is probably going to give a clue as to what our number ones are going to be as well. But anyway, The Killing, 1956. Now, again, another subject we're definitely going to have to cover. Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. A master of his art, as is Christopher Nolan, actually, to be honest. They're true auteurs. And we talked about Nolan and his motifs and his recurring themes and um, his cerebral elements and his uh, ensemble cast. And you... I wouldn't say ensemble cast is in that, but most of the other stuff is true of Kubrick. He's a meticulous perfectionist. But I mean, I watched this film again last week um, and I'd never seen it before. And what kind of really struck me is you could tell it was a Stanley Kubrick film. Yeah. Um, It had his kind of DNA all over it. The the kind of um, narration, the sort of muscular direction, there was no messing about it, moved everything on. He was what about twenty six, twenty seven when he made this film? Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he kind of didn't really, vent, you know, his yeah. the whole vision was was there then. It's mad. It's funny because it. I certainly my way into Stanley Cooper going back in time when I was younger was, you know, I was aware of the the, the same obvious famous films: The Clockwork Orange, The Shining, two thousand and one. Um, those those are the sort of films that probably people first think of when they think of Kubrick. They might remember Spartacus was him yeah. as well, which is a bit earlier. But yeah. essentially, the the black and white stuff is quite interesting because you don't think initially of Kubrick as a 
a black and white filmmaker from that yeah. earlier age. But here, this film is in beautiful black and but white. But it's another one that, that um, we're talking about. It, it was very similar, I thought, to Rafifi, which came out about at the same time. Yeah. That felt very much like a kind of 70s style Hmm. gangster film but it was made yeah, in, the, fun, in the 50s it? oh very yeah. very much this so. is 1956 and it's yeah very modern it feels fresh i'd seen it before i watched it again um second or third time i think it was um, last week and it surprised me again how fresh and kind of modern yeah. it felt for the age i know it's not 40s or anything but it's you know, 1956 you know yeah this is before the the likes of films like psycho and stuff like that would come out this film is really fresh and it's great and it does have loads of classical Hollywood elements but yeah. as you said it also has that very distinct stamp of Stanley Kubrick and it does have that under the kind of underlying kind of sense of violence that you yeah. don't really used to get in, in films of kind of that generation yeah well you did in film noirs I think there's some some film yeah. noir get onto that subject more again later on but um I think you did get some elements of of violence in that yeah and this does have that grittiness it's got that film noirishness you know people with hats on uh gangster stuff going on um it's got sterling hayden in the main role by the way um yeah. who's in asphalt jungle yeah exactly yeah which is the other one that just missed out for me um Ubrick also um wrote or co-wrote this um in terms of the cast in general they're all brilliant aren't they they're, they're, they're all great i mean not really many famous names in there sterling hayden is pretty much the the most famous by some i history. recognize the guy um who played the kind of who worked behind the counter i'm sure i've seen him in loads yes. of other films yeah he he's been in um he was in a hitchcock film uh, i can't remember which one it was now I think it's one of the uh, 30s or 40s films. He's he's an older guy in this. Um, he's part. He's the insider, which is again a yeah. motif of the heist film. You've got to have an insider, haven't you, to to create an angle. Um, Sterling Hayden is a like a seasoned criminal who's working this angle to to rob a racecourse on its most popular high betting day. There's there's the big race that's going on. The concept is small crew rob all of the payroll from the office of the race course and all of the takings or most of the takings um what they do is they hire a, a, a sniper to shoot one of the leading horses to yeah, create that's horrible isn't it yeah yeah and this character who i could have sworn was a an ancestor well, an ancestor that sounds a bit too far away um, was a family relation of John Turturro. Uh, he looks yeah. like Hitler. I, mean, I was thinking something. Yeah, yeah, Nothing to do with him at all. He's not yeah. even in the same country originally. But um, he's a horrible character as well. Yeah, he? he's kind of slimy and a bit shifty. Um, and he's trying. Essentially, he goes through uh, an off-limits car park, the overspill car park that's not yet in use. Yeah, the you know the guy the the, um, the barrier to let him in. Uh, who's, who happens to be a black guy? And as the as as the um, time comes up towards when he's supposed to shoot this yeah. horse, the, the the guy's formed a bond in his own mind. Yeah, yeah. With this marksman as as a decent guy, he's he coming around hassling him all the time. Doesn't yeah, he? he keeps hassling him. Are you sure you don't want something to drink? Do you want, can I help you? Because he's pretended he's disabled, so he can't get yeah. out of the car. That's why he's in the car the whole time. And this black guy comes up and starts asking him this, that, and the other. And he eventually gets impatient and makes a very blatantly racist yeah, comment yeah. which to be fair you could tell he did deliberately to immediately ostracize the guy yeah the way it's a pretty brutal way of doing it it is 
would would you have chosen a different way for that character to do that later down the line? Maybe. So it's a yeah. problematic element. But I, I I I I felt quite quite satisfied when the the lucky charm <laughs> that the the guy had given him um yeah. he was a was a horseshoe he reversed over and burst his tire and he got shot so yes, every, everything turned out right yeah those are <laughs> beautiful aren't they I, apologies I for the spoiler yeah. yeah but um well that's hot part way through isn't it so it's a very small scale heist there's very few people involved sterling hayden essentially is pretty much the only man behind the scenes yeah. well he is the only man behind the scenes acting out yeah. what he needs to do to steal the money um it's an interesting notion uh and what what happens there's there's something again i'm not going to plot spoil it other than to say something very very similar happens in this film that happens at the end of the lady killers oh, um, the, sort of the, the ending oh okay yeah. Well, well yeah, you, I mean, back then they could, you couldn't be seen to be getting away with it, could you? So. Exactly, yeah. So there is a twist in the tale. I really like the ending. I like the way it, I like the way it starts. I like the way yeah. the, the middle act goes, and I like the way it concludes. I think it's it's Kubrick at one of his earlier bests. I would say he has made a number of masterpieces. He is a, he is a meticulous perfectionist. He, he is yeah. a, a really almost it's, it's anal basically the degree yeah. to which he. He becomes a perfectionist. In this film, it's an earlier work. I think he's less fussy. Um, he's still very pristine and really well calculated and worked out. It's impeccable. It's a, it's a superb film. It's a hard-boiled pot boiler, isn't it, basically? And It came very, very close to getting in my my top five. Obviously, Fast and Furious 5 is a far more superior piece of work. To be honest, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. The only thing that kind of slightly diminished it in my eyes was every single character was really unlikable. Yeah, I yeah, I guess you're right. Actually, it does create a slightly cold element, doesn't it? I don't think I mind that too much, actually. But I do know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is, but I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But from a personal taste kind of thing, yeah. if I'm watching something like this, I want to be able to at least side with one of the characters. You have but, to be able to root for them because they're either. There's something about them. There's a redeeming feature, or they are actually very three-dimensional characters. So although yeah. they're guys or bad girls, they're um they've got something driving them, or yeah. the reason they're doing it, either uh, the reason they, that's motivated them, or the reason they they want an end product to happen. You know, they're, they're stealing money for a particular reason, that kind of thing. Or you can have something like the Ealing comedies where you use comedy essentially to to make them likable. There's there's Stuff funny happening. The lady killers will definitely get onto that another time. But yeah. there's an old lady that's the landlady where one of the characters is staying. Yeah. They all pretend, try to hide out and pretend to be musicians. And there's so much comedy to be had in that. Yeah. Those those features can help you. But in this film, yeah, you're right. There's nobody likable. They're all quite stiff, kind of film noirish kind of characters. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah, and everybody they surround themselves with, whether it's the girlfriend or the girlfriend's boyfriend, they're all horrible. They're all out for themselves. Yeah. yeah, there's one bit of trivia actually, just to, to read out from um, the killing from IMDb. Actually, this one it says initial test screenings were poor, citing non-linear structure as the main problem. Stanley Kubrick was forced to go back and edit the film in a linear fashion, which clearly not what he was originally planning to do. Um, actually, making the film even more confusing in the end, it was released in its original form, which is not yeah. that common a scenario actually in those days. 
and is often cited as being a huge influence on other non-linear films like Reservoir Dogs mm. and Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, yeah. yeah. And in fact, uh, there's a film that's gone out of my head at the moment. It wasn't The Asphalt Jungle, was it? There's a film where the characters are called Mr. Grey, Mr. White. Mr. Yeah. White. No, that, that was that was in a Hong Kong film, I think. It was no, a Hong Kong that, action film. Classic film. City on Fire or something like that. No, there's, there's something before. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it was. Might, it, it might have been a French one. I don't know. No, I think it, I've got a feeling it was Asphalt Jungle. Okay. I'll need to check that because I didn't watch it again. So I haven't, haven't seen, seen it recently. But yeah, that, that's unfortunately the one thing with Tarantino is the level to which he is, um, referential is oh, yeah. a little bit over the top in the end. <laughs> um, but, I've, just, I've just looked it up. The guy who I recognized from this film, his name's Elisha Cook Jr. Yeah, that's, um, him. that's him. So he's also been in House on Haunted Hill, Rosemary's Baby, The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Bogart and he's been in the A-Team and, as well. So. Oh, lovely. This is the guy who's the clerk, the inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I recognised him straight away. Where have I seen him? Yeah, yeah. I thought he'd been in Hitchcock, but you're right, yeah. The, he might have been. He might well have been. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. There we go. Well, so that's my number two, The Killing, a classic. Great film. Noirish gangster, but also heist film. Marvellous. Now, there's top a... Top up. Just, uh, we could have a top up, because there's a very distinct possibility that we may have the same number one. Oh, I um, hope so. Something as conspicuous by its absence so far, Phil. Yes. <laughs> Let, let's see. One of um, my favourite films ever. Can I go and get a beer, and then we'll be back in a sec? Oh, I don't see why not. Well, many films come in the shape of Acts 1, 2 and 3, don't they? And so does this podcast. And it is time for Act 3, which yes. takes the shape, Phil, of our number one choices. That coming up in a moment, but only after we've mentioned our latest beer quafferies. Um, as I quite reg- regular listeners will know, I drink a lot of Camden Town Brewery beer. Um, I'm not a big lager drinker, but the Camden House lager on a hot summer's day. Yeah. Goes down the tree. It's not that hot today, Phil. <laughs> this time last week, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I'll forgive it. That's, it's it's still beer. summer. Yeah. Well, I am just finishing off my other one, actually. But when I do partake of another one, you'll probably hear a hissing noise as the bottle top comes off during this third and final part of the pod. I've got Night of the Garter from the Windsor and Eaton Brewery, from my uh, my cousin, Ooh, who, who was delighted to have a shout-out for his name when we did the Bond podcast. Um, I've met up with him recently. He's given me this, which is very nice, actually. Um, so, John, hello Ooh, again. Nice. hope you're enjoying this. Now, um, if we move straight on to our number ones, before we say what our number ones are, can I just say that John's number one is the Italian job, obviously. Um, I don't know if we might agree with him or not already on that. Who knows? Who knows? We'll find out in a second. Um, anything else to mention before we get on to our number ones, Phil? Let's go into number one. Okay. It's you first. Because it's one of my favourite films ever. I vividly remember watching this film as a kid and it being one of the first times I watched a film that was, you know, a bit older oh. and loved every single second of it. Yeah. So it's not strict. It's kind of a heist film. You get to see a lot of planning and you get to see the heist and the con and you get to see the aftermath. It's 1973, it's The Sting. 
The Sting, you've gone for, yeah. yeah. I love this film. Um, so, uh, two grifters, yeah. like you need to know who they are, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, team up to pull off the ultimate con, con of the... Um, what were you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> mob boss Robert Shaw. If everyone, anyone was ever born to play a mob boss, it was Robert Shaw. You can't um, get enough of Robert Shaw, can you? I Phil? love Robert Shaw. <laughs> he's, he's just brilliant in everything. He's just, oh, he's fantastic. We're going to need a bigger podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, directed by George Roy Hill, who had uh, directed Newman and Redford before in uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and inspired by the real life cons perpetuated by the brothers Fred and Charlie Gondorf. Um, it's an interesting one, this one. Um, it's sort of played out in chapters with kind of cards coming up that introduce each chapter sort of every sort of 10 to 15 minutes. Um, yeah. And each has kind of got a distinct old fashioned sort of title and that kind of thing. So it was, the script was written by a, a guy called, um, let me get this right. It's regard, this is regarded as one of the best scripts ever written in the history of cinema by a guy called David S. Ward. So this was his first script. He was about 30. He wrote this script. It went into a pile of scripts in some agent's um, like a kind of office. A, a guy called Rob Cohen, who was later launched the France Foster Furious franchise, was the <laughs> script editor at the time. It was sort of, he was very much younger. He was reading through all the scripts that were just sort of sat around to see if there's anything good came across this one basically turned around and said this is an award-winning film to his boss universal bought it that afternoon and that was it what what, what kind of i'm find most interesting is you look at the rest of the scripts that this guy wrote afterwards <laughs> for really terrible films um he also wrote um major league king ralph sleepless in seattle and down periscope the what guy that wrote know? the sting how One of the greatest that... screenplays ever. First time he did it, Dynamite. I think it was, don't think you could get lightning in a bottle twice in, in this particular no, instance. I think I, the one hit wonder syndrome really hit in there, isn't it? I mean, King Ralph is a pretty much made for video film with John Goodman, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, that's a real disparate band of. It is, isn't well, it? it's not even similar bad films. It took, well, not bad films. They're, they're but, but, I mean, this film, I think, is very, very similar to kind of uh, in, term, in terms of vibe to Ocean's Eleven, I think you've got really likable convicts, very yeah. pretty. I mean, Brad Pitt and Robert Redford, very similar looking guys. With, yeah, you know, yeah, he's the modern uh, day Redford. Isn't yeah, he? yeah, and with better skin. But they're, <laughs> you, they're, they're, yeah, they're very, very <laughs> lovable. You, you, you watch them and you just kind of you just trust them and you know that everything's going on, and it's just really, really, really cool. It looks the part. It's set in the 1930s. They, you know, one of the characters he's been um, wronged by a mob boss and decides he wants to do him sort of get do when run over on him and get him back. So he creates a kind of fake bookies that the guy will come in and then bet all his money, and then they can then close the fake bookies and run away with the money. And that's essentially everything you need to know about the film. And it's it's just brilliant. The characters that you you wish it was a TV series so you could watch con other people on a weekly basis. You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was mentioned again, motifs with twists and 
like the cross or the double cross or the like the one within the con. There's there's elements of that. We we I mean, surely everyone's seen this film by now. But if they yeah. haven't, then you've got to, uh, I guess, have um, a notion that there's going to be some some of that kind of activity going on. It's it's got those elements in it. Um, they're brilliant. I mean, it's the it's the buddy movie element as well. It, it is, yeah. yeah. It, the, I mean, the whole the whole kind of vibe and atmosphere and bumping off each other that, that was, you see from George Clooney. It's, it's, it's the follow-up, isn't it? To, it's the follow-up. This is a few yeah, years yeah. after Butch Cassidy. Yeah. But it's the same thing you see with George Clooney and, and um, Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. You see here, you, they're just really, really cool people and they make being cool effortless and easy and you just want to see them you know, perpetuate a crime and you want to see them get away with it. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, all this, they bring in a whole kind of band of grifters to come in and help them. And the way, the way that they plan it and they work everything out. Um, Newman's character is famous for all these different cons that he can do and being the kind of ultimate go-to guy for that. He just seems completely trustworthy. He's basically George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven, you know. It's, it's just a, a really easily watchable film. You think you're immediately taken back to the 1930s. Um, you, um, you kind of, they got the, um, they, they, I think the director, George Roy here, he wanted the film to be reminiscent of 30s films. So he watched lots of them and he devised a kind of color scheme. There was lots of browns and maroons and things like that. Oh, that kind yeah. of sort of fitted in and he used old sort of fashioned 1930s style lighting. Yeah, and to kind of get the right vibe, yeah. and you know, it, it could be a 1930s color film quite easily. You know. Yeah, I like it when when films do that because I, I can really project you back to a, a different time. The the notion I remember being a very young kid thinking that the world existed in black and white before the color. Yeah, you know, the, the actual world was in black and white. You know, when I was very young, people I, yeah, used to play snooker in black and white. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this didn't last for long, by the way. By the time I was eighteen, I'd realised. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, to hear it, but I do like. You know, there is that notion you can't help doing it of thinking that the the old world was kind of a bit more fussy and stiff and fastidious. But you, you know, when you when you put things into colour, which obviously they were yeah. in that era, it, that makes an, an interesting element to it. As you said, you don't get colour 30s films obviously uh colorized maybe but that's not the same thing but um it's a great film this is where um again the quali- the qualifications for the category i know i, I couldn't here. help it myself i haven't included it not because yeah. i love the film i think it's a bloody brilliant film um for all the reasons you've described and probably more if i, I watched it again to remind myself but um I haven't included it. Just on the basis, I felt it more of the con film. I know you've yeah. actually, it is very similar to Ocean's Eleven. And if I did watch it back, I might actually think, well, they're too similar to leave one out and not leave one in. Um, however, I, I just thought of it as the whole, the, the con element. More. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been so long since I've seen it. so I'd, oh, I watched it again a couple of weeks ago. It was, yeah. it was glorious, better than I even remembered. I remember what, what, Mate, getting some friends to watch this, my flatmates in my last year at university, who would never watch a film that was more than two years old. And I put, oh. I said, you've got to watch this. And got the video out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they just sat there and like, this is brilliant. This if if anyone is listening to this and isn't a fan of older films, honestly, you are missing out on so much. It's ridiculous. Um, just take it in context of when it was made and 
you know, these films are brilliant. It's interesting you said though, having watched it again and it stands the test of time. It doesn't feel oh, definitely. Um, I think in a couple of ways, a film we mentioned earlier, Reservoir Dogs, in some senses does feel dated. Some something about I think only because it's been aped so much and it's been ripped off so much, and you've got so fed up with Hmm. how uh, bad versions of it because there's been so many. It really was relentless and horrendous, actually. That Uh, that is true, but um, I mean, the main flaw for me in Reservoir Dogs is Quentin Tarantino's in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honest, it's terrible um but he, he can make a film definitely derivative even though they are but um anyway no the sting is a brilliant film brilliant film um, so um it yeah. was um massive critical commercial success 10 oscar nominations um it won seven including best picture best director uh, Redford was nominated for actor. One person who wasn't nominated for actor was Robert Shaw. So he um, kind of said that his name should be after Newman and Redford's in the credits. Mm. And that essentially, before the opening titles, and uh, uh, I don't know what the Oscar rules were at the time, but that essentially ruled him out of being nominated, which is... Uh, Oh. rubbish so originally jack nicholson was offered the lead role in this i think sort of chinatown was around about the same time kind of similar-ish kind of film um he turned it down once paul newman got attached the script was writ- written for him in mind um and him and redford and newman sent it off to robert shaw and said right you're doing this robert shaw limps all the way through this film this wasn't kind of any kind of like method gangster acting he fell over the week before they started filming it and hurt himself so he limps all the way through the film. It was a genuine limp. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, also, you mentioned Paul Newman there. Um, Paul Newman. He had a string of flops before this film. He really yeah. needed a hit, hit before when this came out. I mean, yeah. Paul, Paul Newman reminds me of my, my late Uncle Percy. I don't know what that is to say. He was, I think he, he mimicked the Newman look. I think he riffed on that whole uh, that whole vibe, smoked cigars as well. But Paul Newman was obviously a heartthrob. He was a real kind of the rugged kind of um, discerning choice for the ladies, I think. Um, it's interesting. In Towering Inferno, you mentioned Mark Kermode. Yeah. He's often mentioned the fact that Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, that is the actor, not the Oh, director. that was the one where they had arguments over whose name was yeah, the highest the poster. One of them was in the bottom left, one is in the top right, which is the yeah. only way resolving that. So they do genuinely have equal billing, because obviously left to right, you could say left is interpreted as first, up and down yeah. up first. So they had it bottom left and top right. Um, so maybe um, Robert Shaw could have been bottom right in that scenario. Yeah, yeah could have been. Um, one other thing we haven't yet mentioned about this film, which is equally brilliant, is the score, the ragtime score, which is a very, very, very much a part, a part of the kind of... It's a, well, Phil, it's you're a massive like a jazz fan, aren't you? I know, I know you're a big I'm jazz not fan. at all, but the, uh, the, um, the work of Scott Joplin, it just fits the film perfectly. I mean, the entertainer is the kind of the, the main piece that's in here. I think... <laughs> Yeah, it just fits the mood perfectly. I think a lot of records were sold in the kind of aftermath of this film coming out, and it really, really popularised that kind of whole thing. But they went out, and I think they hunted down exactly the right... They didn't get someone to score it. They went in and got a specific type of music from that period Hmm. that was kind of underrepresented and not a lot of people knew about, and 
it, it fits perfectly. When we get around to doing 70s movie scores, this will very likely be on my list. <laughs> yes, and in fact, we're going to do our 60s movie scores. On we're going to do that next, aren't we? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I think some films benefit from not having a discernibly distinctive and over... Well, with Dog Day Afternoon has no score whatsoever. It, just, yeah. it fits yeah. the kind of yeah. the ambience of the film. Other films you can't imagine would work without scores, and I think the Sting yeah. is one of those. Yeah, and, and if you could imagine it. Star Wars without the Star Wars music, it would be a vastly yeah. <laughs> different <laughs> experience and not yeah. anywhere near as good. Yeah, exactly. But we've we've mentioned today. I mean, I talked about the Circle of Rouge as not not in my top five, but that's a film very quiet but very little dialogue. When the dialogue's there, often it's not particularly loud. And it, I, don't, I can't remember any score at all in that. I'm not sure there's any yeah. score. There. Um, and we and yet we've talked about two films today here: The Sting and Baby Driver, where the music is and um, Ocean's Eleven to a certain degree as well. Oh yeah, it? yeah, and Ocean's yeah. Eleven, where the music does drive the narrative. I do think The Sting stands up alone from that as yeah. well. But um, but Baby Driver, it's part of the story, and I think um, it's, it's certainly up to a point. It's a, it's a key character for The Sting, you could say. Yeah. Hmm. Brilliant. Right. So amazingly, you've not got the Italian job in your top five, Phil. It's all I've, right. I've got it at number one. I've you've got, got it at number one. one. Yeah. I yeah. watched it again last week. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. It was a good bit of fun. Yeah. Um, this I have no intention of going back and watching it again anytime soon. Really? Oh, but I did enjoy it. It's great. Um, but yeah, why, why, why particularly is not in the top five then? Got Benny Hill in it. <laughs> <laughs> I've relegated it several places immediately. Um, I, I just felt I, I, I think it's a little bit dated. I think it's very, yeah. very cool. Britannia, sixty chic. It's very much a product of his time. It's a fantastic film. I mean, the the stunt driving by Remy Giuliani, who did all the James Bond films as well. It's yeah. probably never been bettered in, in any film since, apart from Fast and Furious 5. And <laughs> <laughs> Baby Driver. <laughs> Baby Driver. Um, we should do top five car chase films. Yeah, that would be great. Um, well, a couple of those are going to be straight away, don't we? <laughs> yeah. um, it's great. It's great. I just, yeah. Um, other films okay. I, I enjoyed more. But yeah, I'm I, I'm, I mean, it is my number one, just uh, just to, mm. to clarify. And we are talking about the original, not the remake, obviously. Yeah. Um, the remake wasn't that the remake was all bad. Right. I, I, I thought it's, it was... It's, it's quite strange. So um, they, they, the, the remake hmm. did better than they were expecting. Yeah. And so they decided they were going to make a sequel to it that was going to be called The Brazilian Job. I'm not making this up. I'm deadly serious. And then the people weren't available, so they rewrote the script and it became Fast and Furious 5. No, seriously? Yeah, seriously, straight up. <laughs> well, there we go. When you said Brazilian, <laughs> I didn't think, hang on, this is yeah. where I think it's going, is it? But it was. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Well, I mean, for me, yeah, the remake was actually quite decent. I thought I thought it was uh, underrated. Mark Wahlberg and Charlie Theron, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of people panned it, basically. I thought it wasn't that bad. It wasn't... They it was... panned it because it had Americans in it and it was English people in the first and it was yeah, 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 and I mean, anytime is... you remake a beloved kind of cultural classic, you're exactly. onto a loser. You're exactly, never you are, aren't you? And I do think the the issue with, I mean, the star. We talked about um, 
the music being a star in Baby and Baby Driver, the cars are very much the oh, yeah. stars of this film. And when the stars are the original minis, if you do a remake with the newer versions of the minis, just like the real cars, they're not quite as good. They don't have as much charm. They don't have as much character. They're not bad. They drive all right, but they're not they're not as entertaining. For me, the Italian job it probably has dated. It does have some problems. I do think there's there's a, there's a lot of like all the characters are caricatures. Let's be honest, they are a bit caricatured, and there is a this this the interesting timing of this was just pre EC, which is the precursors yeah. uh, of EU, and um, there was a xenophobia apparently surrounding this story of yeah. we're better than you type of stuff, and apparently it wasn't very well received at all in Italy because they made most of the Italian. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah, so it does have its problems, but for me, this is an absolute film classic. It's another um, one that we we mentioned it with the Sting, we mentioned it with Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, it's cool. It's yeah. very cool. It doesn't have to try to be cool. It just yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, it has that thing which a lot of the the, the, the classic films have. It it has classic lines, classic scenes, which come together. As you said, it's supposed um, to blow the bloody doors off. off. Yes, yeah, so you got that. And you've got Charlie, it's Charlie, it's Charlie. And then, of course, so uh, you've got the line at the end, yeah. which we'll probably come to at the end yeah. of this podcast. But um, it's got um, some seminal moments, you know, some of the stunt work, obviously, down the steps in particular. Yeah. And Remy Julian, you look at the number of films that he did. Yeah. And some of the things that he did. I, I, I don't know what the health and safety rules were like, but I don't know how he yeah. pulled any of these off. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But you've yeah. Got- You've got that thing of you're showing off the cars, you're showing off the scenery in Italy, set yeah. in Turin, of course, where um, there's sort of like similarly a, or vaguely there's a football thing, isn't there? Where they're, they're in football yeah. van get garb and they're in some camper van as a distraction vehicle and all that sort of stuff going on. There, you've got the four minute, I'm sorry, the three minutes, you've got the red, white, and blue. Yeah. It's very patriotic, isn't it? You've got Michael Caine in one of his best roles. You've got the the, the blowing the bloody doors off scene, obviously. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about how much quicker and shorter no it's. Oh, coward. Um, <laughs> it's tight. It doesn't waste it. It is very it's tight. Yeah. To come up really quickly. Noel Coward, yeah, as you said, as Mr. Bridger. I just you couldn't imagine him being in a film like this. No, he, it's, it's a bit. It's the, completely opposite of what he would normally do. Oh. But he, he definitely, you know, he, he goes into it with gusto. He's well up for it. He's a comedian. He's a performer, a poet, a sort of lyricist. Yeah. Uh, he's a playful character. Um, a playwright. He's playing, the, he's playing the gang boss who's essentially mm-hmm. getting exactly what he wants in prison. He's getting a you know, three-course meal served on a tray. Uh, yeah. he's all of the inmates seemingly are like football fans applauding him. He yeah. gets um, his own private time in the toilet with the newspaper where somehow bizarrely Michael Caine's able to he sneaks yeah. back into prison. I don't, I'm not quite sure how that happens. Yeah. Which is a bit weird. Um, Michael Caine, by the way, sneaks his brother into the film. He's one of the crew, the driving crew. Oh, okay. Uh, Charlie Caine, I think his name is. Um, so he pushed for it. Uh, but yeah. it's not his real name because isn't it Maurice Micklethwaite is... Yeah, he, 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 so he must uh, be Charlie Micklethwaite or something. Well, either that or we use the same surname. I'm not sure. Yeah, so I don't yeah, think yeah. He was credited on it. I don't oh, think. okay. I'm not sure. He had one of the smaller roles. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's got a, a number of classics. Michael so Caine at that time was. I mean, that was the same sort of time as Alfie and it you know, feels like. Yeah, he yeah. was. He yeah. He was kind of 
at, at the top of his game in kind of, I mean, I, I, he's done, he's done better acting jobs since, but in terms of the I kind of iconic look and yeah. appearance and accent, that, that was, that was the time. Yeah. This, of course, is a gold bullion theft as well, just to clarify the details. Um, so you've got, you've got the killing and, um, Lady killers, there's there's money flying all over the place. In this one, uh, you've got gold bullion, which is of course the Lavender Hill mob as well. This this time it doesn't go into the so four out of minor money, and one of them's planting a seed of an idea. Yeah, in a completely surreal way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rest of my yeah. cash, dreamscapes. Yeah, um, this one, yeah, it's about the bullion. You've got we can't talk about this film without talking about the opening scene and the closing scene. Now, yeah. I think. So many films, you could probably say this in books as well, can be let down by how they start or finish. They, it's not easy to finish Perfect finish a story. When well. you're under those constraints, you can't, you want, it's a very kind of patriotic film. Oh, and yeah. You yeah. want to see them, the English people do one over on the Italians and yeah. the, not so much the Italians, but the mafia, let's be honest. Yeah. And so you want to see them win that, but you can't, show them getting away with it because those were the kind of cinematic rules at the time. Yeah. Considering the constraints they were under, perfect ending. It's exactly perfect because they don't get away with it, but they don't not get away with it. Yeah. Do they? Uh, if anyone hasn't seen this film, where the hell have you been? Yeah, they, they, they're driving, essentially, they um, they escape, um, they drive the minis into the back of a of uh, the coach that's been hollowed out, yeah, and transfer all the money, dump the, the minis over the side of a cliff, and then the, the whole of the crew are now in, in the coach driving along those hairpin drinking beds, beer, cheering drinking exactly where the beginning of the film starts as well. Yeah, with an Italian mobster being whacked out by one of yeah, his yeah. contemporaries, and at the end, you've got them on the same roads or, or very similar roads, um, and they are driving a little bit recklessly, and the coach skids round and is left half perched over. A cliff edge, so it is literally a cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, the difference with most cliffhangers is you get a follow-up in a cliffhanger. There was proposed to be a sequel, and it was left. I think part I'm of the very glad they didn't do that. Yeah, because I mean, what would they have done with it? The idea was they would they would potentially make a sequel within two years of the original film, which is 1969. I think. Nine, I think. Yeah. yeah um. um and the concept was they left it open, A, because they thought it was a good way to finish the film in general, and B, because if they did decide to do a sequel, they could follow it up because yeah. what happens next? And I think the notion was what they were going to do was they were going to have it that um, the, the mafia would get them off the cliff but would, of course, steal all the money and leave them in the lurch, as they did early in the... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the, the notion would be that there'll be a heist to try and get the money back from the mafia, which could be all the more ambitious than the original. That's what they were. Okay. I, I mean, a film like this must have cost a lot of money, and I can't see it having any appeal outside of England. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It's quite niche, isn't it? In one sense. Yeah. However, and I know my other half hadn't seen it, for example, and she had a notion of it being a bit, this isn't going to be that great. When she did see it many years ago now, but a long time after it came out, yeah. she, she thought, oh, actually, this is really enjoyable. This is really good. Um, the yeah, other, I mean, they're, they're a likeable bunch of characters. They um, are. And they're, they're affable. And there's a bit of comedy in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, Again, definitely. We do like to throw a bit of comedy into our heists. And, and, and the stunts for that, I mean, even by today's standards, they're great, but 
Yeah. But by the, those standards of the day, fantastic. All the stuff with the minis. Going I mean, through storm tunnels and everything else. Storm tunnels, they're going up and down, swaying like mad. Yeah. Um, they were actually, apparently, that bit where they're in the tunnel, rocking from side to side, they apparently one of the guys was going, was attempting to do a full circle, and he, he, he only didn't do it because he wasn't able to. The, 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 um, the physics of it didn't allow it to. Okay. Happen. He was trying to do that, which is madness. <laughs> so they're in the tunnel, you know. This yeah. Thing piping with the lights on and you know these mini coopers and everything yeah um, they, i think the budget was wasn't as bad as you might imagine because what they did the opening scene which we should mention they've got this yeah this mobster driving a lamborghini to the, to the into a tunnel yeah on days like these by matt monroe uh which is absolutely brilliant i love yeah. the, the, the self-preservation society but yeah I, I like them both. I, I prefer Matt Monroe. <laughs> I like the crooners, you know, Phil. Yeah. Um, and he's driving this Lamborghini looking really cool. And essentially he goes into a tunnel, doesn't come out. There's some kind of crashing noise. And then you see mobsters in a very distinctive style, all standing in their sharp jet black suits with white shirts. Yeah. They look very the cool. Side. And there's yeah. a guy standing there, the mob boss, who's obviously decreed this guy's going to get whacked who's standing there with a big reef, which apparently they spent loads of time and effort on making, which is just never seen in close-up. So kind of a bit of a waste of time, really. Mm. And he, he rolls the wreath down after the, the Lamborghini, which has basically crashed in the tunnel and then been bulldozed over the edge. Yeah. What they did in the production was they hired a Lamborghini for the interior shots and the, and the, the harmless exterior shots. Yeah. And they also bought loads of Lamborghini wrecks uh, to use to throw over the edge. Oh, so okay. A couple of already written off cars. The minis they had um, two of each, so two of the red, two of the white, two of the blue, and they just did. Um, obviously, they did all the stunts. That's mad. With fast, I don't want to keep coming back to it. Fast, Furious Five. Their last chase at the end, they smashed up two hundred cars. Bloody hell! Just, just, not the not not in total. Those were just the, the main characters have one car each. And they smashed up 200 of those driving around Rio with a big bank safe dragged along on a chain behind them. <laughs> uh, how they could have done all those stunts? And because they must have accidents. Um, we've, only, we've only, we've only, you know, yeah. one main one and one spare or whatever. That's mental. It is mad, isn't it? It is mad. I mean, it's an Italian job. They, they actually did keep a tight budget. Um, they were under certain constraints, and they had two of each of the minis. And what they did was they they managed to avoid crashing any of them during the all the general stunt work. And then they had two goes at writing them off over the edge of the cliff because yeah. they dumped them over the cliff. So they they did two takes with two different cars of each color. So six cars basically were yeah. there, and the rest were wrecked. So it wasn't as big a budget as you might imagine. However, oh, okay. it was obviously a fairly big budget. Um, I just love it. A classic film. As you said, you've got on days like these at the beginning, you've got self-preservation society at the end, uh, which has got that. It's a strange one because it's one of those things that you would expect to hear more as as a song. You like three lions or whatever you hear every time England play football. I'm surprised that never really kind of took off that much. Yeah. The England football, the, the, the brass band people. Yeah. Don't they? Or have done in the past, but not more recently, yeah. A um, couple of other bits just to mention from the trivia side of things. BMC, which is the British Motor Co- uh, Corporation, the owners of the Mini uh, refused to donate any cars for this movie. So they did have to buy... But they sold a lot of it. 
Yeah, exactly. Talk about product placement. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it says the chief of Fiat Motors, however, offered to donate all of the cars needed, including Fiat 500s, in the place of the Minis. Director Peter Collinson, uh, we haven't actually referenced him yet, sorry, Peter, um, uh, decided that as it was a very British movie, it should be British Minis. Fiat's bosses still donated scores of cars for filming, as well as the factory grounds. And even though authorities refused to close the roads, the Italian mafia stepped in and shut whole sections of Turin down for filming. So the traffic jams in this movie are real, as are people's acting during it. That's just mental, isn't it? Mad, isn't it? You just could not do that now. Um, If you watch the offer on TV about... TV series, the offer about the making of the Godfather, you see how much the mafia was involved in that. It is scary. Yeah, exactly. It really is. Um, and the mafia really are as prevalent as you have heard in Italy. They yeah. Are. Um, there's also a quote here. I'm just trying to get the quote up here. Um, uh, oh, yeah, this is, this is one of the quotes from the film we haven't mentioned. Charlie Croker, which is the Michael Cage. Yeah. Says, just remember this: in this country, they drive on the wrong side, wrong of, side the of the road, <laughs> which is your typical yeah. Attitude that this film's got. It was very anti-EU. Oh yeah, yeah. As it was. I think it's one of the things that kind of slightly put me off about it. And Benny Hill's character in this film is problematic, to say the least. But well, he is, yeah, because I mean, Benny Hill's character is essentially he's the sort Benny of, Hill, yeah, he's the tech guy, isn't he? And he's yeah. not the computer genius. Who and knows how to record a new tape to put on? Yeah. yeah. He's reluctant to go over, and they persuade him to go over on the basis that... Um, he's going to meet lots of fat birds. Lots of chunky <laughs> chunky women, yeah. <laughs> Which is really, as you said, very problematic. And it's very Benny Hill, isn't it, essentially? Um, we talked about Sid James being this... Yeah. It seems to be... I know carry-on films were released at the cinema, but it's got that small screen feel, probably because... Yeah where I saw those films growing up, I'm sure the same for you. And Benny Hill is a TV guy, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. And when you see him in a film, it's a bit, it's a bit weird, actually. Yeah, it is it's a bit, bit weird. Um, speaking of um, uh, Eden comedies, by the way, Frankie Howard has a small role in The Lady Killers. Oh, okay. Charles Hawtrey, also another carry-on. and Carry-on veteran, uh, yeah. Is in Passport to Pimlico. So oh, okay. James is, as we mentioned, in pop, in um, Lavender Hill mob. So it's interesting how these guys yeah. have surfaced here and there. Yeah, uh, the old lady in Lady Killers is superb, by the way, absolutely brilliant. Mrs. Wilberforce. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Anyway, that's my number one. Is yeah. the Italian job brilliant? Great film. Yeah, in my top in my top ten. Well, good, good to hear it. Good to hear that. Anyway, regardless, yeah, that's good. Okay, right. Well. Um, You've got some other ones to read out, haven't you? I have indeed, yeah. I mean, first of all, my good friend John Orchard has been in touch. His top five... High, now, well, I didn't give him the criteria that we've... Yeah, we've yeah, fair in. enough. He's gone to his top five movies. Um, he said it's so hard, way too many good films, but I'll give it a go. So he says, in no particular order, lay a cake, which is interesting. That's a good film. Good I do film. like Matthew Vaughan yeah. films, yeah. The Lavender Hill Mob. Um, Sexy Beast, which we've not talked about. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Ben that's Kingsley great. in that film. Yeah, that's on my list of film. other films. You don't really see much of the heist in that. It's all about getting talking the yeah. guy into actually doing it. Yeah. But that 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 character is is just mad. Yeah, yeah. I love that film. 
Speaking of which, he, he's gone with Reservoir Dogs. Again, you don't see that. Yeah, yeah. It's in the aftermath. And I'm not in the least bit surprised to see that he's put the Italian job. Yeah. I knew he would have the Italian job. And he says, actually, that order is pretty close. Maybe switch Sexy Beast and the Lab of the Hill mob round. So presuming the Italian job at the bottom is the number one, yeah. that would that would fit with how I would imagine John would go. So fair play Brilliant. to him. Uh, Nick from Manchester, I mentioned earlier, he's gone for his top five. Now, he's gone number five, Baby Driver, interestingly. Brilliant. He's gone number four, Reservoir Dogs. Number three, Four Kings. Does it count? I'm not That's sure. a good film. Tell me about that film, because I don't know what that is. Isn't it Three Kings? Oh, the yeah, yeah, Three Kings. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg in the, in the Gulf War. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's essentially a heist. Great it's film, yeah. There's there's an old black and white British one. I forgot what it's called, which is apparently robbing the army, and it's a wartime film. I can't remember what it's called now. Army of something, I think it's called. Um, anyway, he's gone for. Forgive us if we've got this yeah. wrong, Nick, but we think that's Three Kings at number three. Number two, he's gone Usual Suspects, and he's Great gone film. the Italian job. He said, do they all fit your definition? He asks, yeah. So there we go. Uh, Robin from the northeast of England has said, I'd agree with most of those picks from Nick. He said he'd all, he'd probably chuck Ocean's Eleven in there too. I'm going to guess that's probably the remake as well. Yeah, um, so. We've also got Ian Davis from Hampshire has gone in no particular order, or maybe it is, I'm not sure. He's gone the Italian job, the 1969 original. He's gone for Snatch. Kelly's Heroes. Well, Snatch yeah. is a film we're going to have to talk about at really? some point because I love that film so yeah. much. I don't know if we've mentioned it on this podcast or if I've ever mentioned it to you, but we need to talk about Brad Pitt's accent as well in Snatch. Do you like Dags? That apparently, we'll go into yeah. more detail later, but apparently that is a phenomenal accent. It's, He's brilliant. In that it's everything about that film is brilliant. Anyway, so Ian, Ian from Hampshire's gone, Italian Job, the original, Snatch, Kelly's Heroes, The Taking oh, of Adam, one, two, three. Robert Shaw, yeah. Robert Shaw again. I'm not sure, again, under our criteria, it probably wouldn't yeah. quite fit the bill, but it's not bad. And The Bank Job, the number one. That Jason Statham. Yeah. That's a yeah. good film. Good. Not it's one of his fun. greatest, but it's interesting. It's really, really well done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's not bad. It's not bad. So we got that. Um, I don't know if there's any others. Let me just quickly sift through my uh, various communications. I don't think I've got any others there. Let me just okay. check another thing. That's it from me, I think. Um, so in terms of other ones that I've got on my list, we spoke yes. about Rafifi earlier. Yeah. Um, another French film that could possibly, we could possibly mention we banned apart. Um, yeah. Good film. Um, uh, we've sort of moving forward. So when I was a teenager, they used to, I'm going to sound like a real old man now, that people who have streaming don't know what it's like. But when I was a teenager, on Sunday evenings on BBC Two, we used to have a programme called Movie Drone. Yeah. We had Alex Cox and then Mark, Mark Cousins. Cousins. Yeah. And they present these films. This is before the internet. So you would never know about all these cool films. Yeah. <laughs> and every now and yeah. yeah, and they would they would show these films, and you think no one ever talks about these films, and they show they show phenomenal films that you'd never have heard of before. I remember watching it one week, and they showed a film um, from 1978 called Blue Collar, uh, which has got Yafet Koto and Harvey Keitel in it about these guys that work in a sort of steel plant or something like that, and then they they kind of rob that. I just remember what I haven't I haven't rewatched it, but I remember watching that years ago, thinking mm. that's brilliant. Why never nobody ever talk about this film? Yeah. 
Um, sort of cult films, aren't they? Effectively, yeah, they used to be a lot good, of those. But not well known. There's an underground. Another, um, another film that is in my top ten that we haven't really mentioned is Heat. The yeah. kind of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. See, yeah. that is a three-hour film. It's a brilliant two-hour film. It's a bit long. It's a great film. It's got some amazing. Val Kilmer's fantastic in it as well. Um, it's got some fant. I mean, the the shoot, the heist in that, the the shootout in the street outside is that's proper visceral. That you feel like you're in the middle it's of a shootout as well, isn't it? it feels, Tom I mean, Sizemore as well. Is it? this, think, is yeah. this influenced uh, Tom Sizemore is in Usual Suspects as well? Yeah. Is yeah. this influenced um, Christopher Nolan a bit? Because that whole. Yeah, I think it was like the Andy McNabb, the guy, the SAS guy who trained them how to use the guns and do it. Mm. That's a film that I reckon if it lost half, half an hour, that film would be a classic. Yeah. It's just a little bit too much going on. Um, I, I, I know you probably won't appreciate it. Another heist film that um, I do also quite enjoyed is Point Break. The no, Keanu like Reeves and Patrick yeah, Swayze. Film. Film. Uh, yeah. That's another one that's quite good. Um, Pierce Brosnan in 1999 did the Thomas Crown Affair. That was a oh, remake. Yeah. I quite enjoyed that. I've got to say Steve, that was quite Steve a good McQueen film. and Andy McGraw in the original. And um, another great film around about the same time um, was a, a film called Ronin. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of that one. Robert De Niro it, one. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was fake. Yeah, Robert De Niro, and it's famous for having loads of ex-Bond villains in it. So it had like Sean Bean and Michael Lonsdale. Yeah. Ronin is Japanese word for samurai. unemployed masterless samurai. samurai. Yeah, 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 masterless. Yeah. Um, Two thousand six uh, Spike Lee film uh, Inside Man. Yeah, good, that's uh, a good show. Yeah, Clive, what's his name? Oh, uh, you know who he is. Yeah. That's a really uh, that was a really interesting one because they went in and did the heist. Spoilers, um, and then they built a wall. And they didn't worry about getting out afterwards. And he just stayed in there for a week until everything had calmed down. And then mm. just kind of walked out with, with, with all the money. Um, a couple of last ones. A uh, 2013 film called Now You See Me, which is a bit more of a kind of con film that had Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg in. It's yeah. it's quite a nice sort of fun, cheap popcorn film. I, I quite, the sequel's not so good. That's really quite a, quite a good film. And one of the films that hasn't been mentioned at all, which is brilliant heist film, uh, 2017 Logan Lucky, the mm, driver and Daniel Craig. Yeah. Okay. okay. Great film. Well, yeah. Well, well, worth watching. Not bad. Yeah. I I have not much to add to that because the ones I've I've got outside my top five I've already mentioned. So the Asphalt Jungle, Bob Lafamber, Rafifi, the Lady Killers, the Circular Rouge, um, and Widows, which I've already mentioned. Yeah. Um, but yeah, interesting stuff in there. Um, one or two of those I've not seen. Um, it's 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 really open to interpretation. This subject. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we'll return to some of those films again under different guises, un- umbrellas, etc. Um, but yeah, some some really good stuff there. If you've not seen any of our top fives, you definitely recommend them. I'm, I haven't seen Fast and Furious Five. I'm going to trust Phil on that one. Trust but, me, just suspend your disbelief. <laughs> couple of beers, a few slices of pizza. Sit back and just just enjoy the just the action scenes and everything. It's ludicrous, but it's not so, as ludicrous as it got later in the series where you couldn't take it seriously. It's yeah, just yeah. one other honourable mention. My end as well. It's not a feature length film, so we can't count it. The Wrong Trousers. 
There's the highest element. <laughs> yes. Not only does it have the greatest um, chase sequence in history with that track thing, where they're laying the track yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, laying it down in front of them. But, you, but you've also got the actual heist in the, in the yeah. film, where essentially a penguin is, uh, is using um, Wallace's homemade, oversized, mechanical, robotic trousers. They've put him in, the, the penguin, who's the villain, wearing a chicken, a rubber glove to make him look like a chicken. <laughs> As you do, is <laughs> is a is a villainous genius, and he's plonked Wallace while he's asleep into the robotic trousers. So Wallace uh, conducts this heist, unbeknownst to himself. He's asleep the whole time, drooping down with his arm, arms flopping about, uh, robbing. I think it's of a valuable jewel or something, isn't? It? I can't remember now. Um, using these these magnetic robotic trousers, so he's walking up walls and round and down, all being operated by the penguin with a remote control. Now that is the go. greatest high sequence ever. And correct correct me if I'm wrong, but that's pretty one of the one of the few what films that we've mentioned that actually won an Oscar. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and rightly so. Honestly, if you've not seen Wallace and Gromit, particularly the second and third of the original short films. Um, wrong trousers and the close shave. Oh, just so good. good. So good. Yeah, brilliant. And that's very quintessentially British, which you could say is true of the Ealing films and the Italian job uh, and one or two of the other things that we picked. Um, however, I think it's a good mix, isn't it? There's a mixture yeah. of Hollywood, there's a mixture of French. There's, there's a, lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun to be had, I think. Heist films are good fun, generally. You don't. Yeah, no, you don't get exactly. You know what you're going to get generally yeah. speaking and you kind of know what way it's going to go every now and then but you, it, you just, if you've got a group of characters that you can kind of really enjoy it's just it's just sit back and watch isn't it absolutely see, see what's going to go wrong exactly and um oh well we've kind of already given you a clue as to what our next subject is when i say a clue we've told you very specifically what it's going to be but what, what can we do for our next one phil phil have you got any ideas we're back to the music aren't we that's the music. Um, so we've done 50 scores, so it's time to do 60 scores, isn't it? So you say you've got an idea. <laughs> and I'm going to try not to make it Dr. No from Russia With Love, golfing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the problem we're doing the same. <laughs> it's going to be you and bloody Bond again. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll, no, I will do my very best not to do that. Lads, I think I've got a brilliant idea. Let's do <laughs> 60s. 60s music, that's next up. Until next time then, thank you very much, Phil, for joining Cheers. us. Cheers. It's been brilliant. It's been a pleasure. And um, we can only round off by saying, cut. In fact, there's just one or two more things that I forgot to mention while we're on air. So I've just jumped back in to quickly clarify them. First of all, quite disgracefully, we didn't use the word caper during this podcast. We really should have done for this subject matter. Anyway, there we go on that one. Second thing on one of my choices, the Lavender Hill Mob. I forgot to mention that this was the debut in a very fleeting cameo at the very beginning of the film of Audrey Hepburn. She does get a credited role for it as a girl who's been given some of the money that's being handed out by Alec Guinness's character at the beginning of the film where he's looking back on the story he's about to tell. So he's he's been caught. There's a fantastic scene at the beginning of the film where he's uh, sitting at a table reflecting on his year in the sun after a successful heist 
and it turns out he's handcuffed to the guy he's talking to and he's about to get taken away. So that was a great um, little cameo for Audrey Hepburn in her first role, looking as beautiful as she ever then went on to do. And one other bit also I've forgotten to mention was my old friend Keith from Suffolk has been in touch with his top fives. He's gone with the Anderson tapes at number 71, a film I've not seen. Rafifi, which we mentioned on the pod, at number four, 1955 film. He has included The Usual Suspects from 1995 at number three. The Italian Job, the original, at number two. And he has gone for number one, The Killing, Stanley Kubrick, 1956. He has also mentioned Ronin, which Phil mentioned, 1998 Robert De Niro film. And then he says, in no particular order... He would also include 1955's The Lady Killers, The Taking of Panem 123, that's the original, Great St Trinian's Train Robbery from 1966. He also mentions The Lavender Hill Mob. And he says um, Pink Panther, 1963, and The Wild Bunch opening scene, and so many more, he says. He also then goes on to add... Uh, League of Gentlemen, 1960, and A Prize of Arms, 1962, um, all of which sound quite intriguing from the research I've done into those last films, which I haven't seen, actually, the last two. Anyway, that was the uh, the additional bit to just add on to the end of this episode. As we mentioned before, we'll be back next month with our 1960s best schools and soundtracks. Until then, cut! <laughs>